Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week on the show. We have a packed episode. Our two main topics, we are going to review Uncharted, The Lost Legacy yes. from Naughty Dog. Quick spoiler-free thoughts on that in a second. And we're going to review the latest episode of Twin Peaks, Part 16, the penultimate week of the show and one of the most magnificent episodes of TV I've ever seen in my life. It is, yeah. It's really fucking good. Uh, so yeah, we will give uh, reviews of both of those in depth. We're going to talk about some other little pieces of stuff, some news. I've played a little bit of Mario plus Rabbids, so I'll give a review forthcoming on that. But I've played enough to yeah. give you some thoughts. I've inverted my y-axis on Yakuza Kiwami. Okay, so, you nice. know, I've started in on that, All the right. first step of playing that game. Yep. So more game reviews coming next week, and... It's a pell-mell marathon from here to the end of the year because there's so much crazy stuff coming down the pike. Yeah. Um, well, what, what, really quick, I loved Uncharted The Lost Legacy. What did you think? I thought it was fantastic, yeah. It's if so you, good. If you like Uncharted at all, like, absolutely pick it up. Don't think that it's like some sort of like minuscule, diminished version of Uncharted because it's $40. Like, it is... I mean, it, it basically my like pitch for the game and my, my response to it is it is like they made an Uncharted one two three style Uncharted game with the Uncharted four engine and mechanics and everything. It's a great way to look at it, even in terms of length and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it is. It's a, it's one of the best Uncharted games. Yeah. It's outstanding. It's yeah. It's Naughty Dog. This is the ten year anniversary of Uncharted, and what a ride that has been. The run of games they have made in those ten years. Legendary, Yeah, absolutely outstanding. Because I have a folder on my PS4 home screen that is all the Naughty Dog games. And now I also have a Jack and Daxter game in there because it was a pre-order bonus for The Lost Legacy. There you go. And uh, it's like, this lineup of games, Uncharted 1, 2, 3, 4, The Lost Legacy, and The Last of Us. That's that's just almost unparalleled in, if you take any other studio in a 10-year time period. Right, yeah. So yeah, anyway, I'm so excited to talk about all of that. Um, before we get into the stuff and the housekeeping, just quick word. I don't know if we have any listeners in Texas. If we do, right, yeah. I don't expect you to be listening to this this week, depending on where in Texas you live. But if you catch up with it, I hope you're okay. If you're not, I hope you get the assistance you need. Yeah. Um, you know, If you want to help out, you can always donate to the Red Cross and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's been sad to see some of the images out of there, and also inspiring to see all the people doing cool stuff, like bringing their own boats out to rescue people in yeah. Houston. But yeah, that's a that's a hell of a thing to see. Um, you know, the last time I think something like this happened in our lifetimes was Katrina, which was eleven years ago. We yeah, kids, something of this so. uh, hurricane of this scale. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, just best wishes to people Absolutely. in that area. Yeah. yeah, let's go ahead and do some quick housekeeping. All right, all right. So. Um, we have on our YouTube channel this week, Halo Episode 7 went up Monday, and that was The Library. Yeah. If you haven't watched any episode of our Halo Let's Play, I would recommend Episode 7, because The Library is a legendary level of Halo, and I thought it turned into one of our best episodes. It's not as long as, the, the, as you would think, because we played that level on normal. 
Yeah, so that's about, when we bumped the difficulty yeah. down. It would have been a very different episode if we had played that on Heroic. Yeah, so that's about a 40-minute episode, and I think one of the funniest. Have you watched that one yet, Sean? Uh, no, I haven't had the opportunity yet. You need to, because there's some surprises in there for you specifically. Okay, We good. joke a lot on the Halo series about the novelization of Halo 1, Halo the Flood. By William C. Dites. C. Dites. Billy Dites. Billy Dites. It, it turned into a big running joke in the second half of the series. Yeah. And in episode 7 in particular, you kept referencing parts from the book, so I... Downloaded the audiobook and oh. the ebook, and there are excerpts in this episode. Fantastic! That I laughed my ass off putting together because the writing is so bad. It's a it's a hell of a thing. It's a hell anyway, of a book. So you I don't are, call it the worst novel I've ever read for no reason. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things about our Halo series is that you will learn a lot. Also, like if you are a casual fan of Halo, even a big fan, I think we had a lot of stuff to give and little pieces of info in addition to just having fun with it. Um, so that series will be finishing up for the public next week. Of course, if you join our Patreon, you can watch all of it right now. Uh, that's a $10 a month thing on Patreon. And we are also, next Monday, September 4th, hopefully, we've had some technical difficulties, we're going to have another batch of videos going up. This will not be the next main series of videos, which is going to be Mario 64. Those begin on Patreon, Monday, September 11th. But in between the two series, we're going to have a little two-parter for you. Yeah. Um, and I think we can announce it's going to be in the game Hitman, yes. which we love. The best game of 2016. And uh, so we just want to tell you that that is coming, and those will be a lot of fun. We actually... I might release these at some point, but we did a few weeks ago try recording these so we would have them ready ahead of time, and there was an issue with the PS4 where we did not have sound for the game, so we just have yeah. game visuals in our narration. Again, I might cut them together because particularly Sean's episode is really funny and is an interesting, like, almost strategy guide for a, for it, a tough... Yeah, it was a tough escalation mission we did, and I felt like we came out really well by the we end. Did. I was very proud of, of the solution we came yeah. up for, at the end of that episode. So maybe I'll make those a Patreon exclusive at some point, just as a little bonus, because they're not... They're going to be a little rough, because as you said, you, you wouldn't hear any game audio, which is eerie. Yeah, it's it's a very unsettling kind of effect. <laughs> so we're going to re-record and do something different in, in Hitman, and that actually transitions us into our stuff yes. for the week. <clears throat> because my first piece of stuff is that... Um, while kind of because the last two big game releases have been Sonic Mania and then Uncharted The Lost Legacy which are both pretty quick games to get through yeah. even though I've played Sonic Mania to completion like three times now um, so I've been on the side a lot I've been playing Hitman on PS4 in part because we were doing those Let's Plays and I just got into it and I didn't want to be like completely unpolished playing it on camera and I went through and I got level 20 mastery on all six maps in Hitman Season 1 and I have to say, that is a fun way to play that game. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Look at the challenges, look at the opportunities, and just go through it. And they've also made some quality of life improvements to the game, I think, with the full Season 1 release earlier this year. Uh, yeah. Where, like, one update is you live longer when you are getting shot at. Yeah. Which is nice. It allows you to kind of fuck around with the game a little yeah. more. And they did, they because the thing they did is they released a pro difficulty mode yeah. at the same time, so that if you want to have, like, the more intense like you get shot like three times in your dead experience that is still in the game but yeah they sort of like made the normal difficulty more accessible and I think it, it opens up a wider range of strategies that you can use honestly is the kind yeah. of like the effect it feels like it has to me That's, this is why difficulty levels are good yeah they make everyone happy right exactly and then the other thing they did is you used to have to to get the points for a challenge you had to like clear the mission and watch the last screen and see the XP roll in? For some of the challenges, not for, for all. Okay. Of them. Yeah. But now it's like for everything, it just goes to your account, and like you don't have to just finish the challenge for every one of them. So it made it a little easier to get a lot of those challenge points. But I just finished up Hokkaido today. That was the last one I had to do. Yeah. And I actually managed to do that one Silent Assassin suit only. 
There you go. So, I'm not uh, sure if I've gone through that map that way yet. Yeah, because I usually cannot manage to do them that way. That one has a good strategy for it. And uh, that, is a, that is a fun game. And boy, if you're ever wondering, how do I do something? There's a lot of literature online for Hitman. Oh, yeah. It is one of the most like discussed games of the last year, few I years. Mean, it has a very passionate fan base. And there's like a, just a lot of like weird intricacies to the mechanics in that game. That if you're not going for some of like the Silent Assassin stuff, you're not going to be exposed to like what counts as like different kind of like concealed kills and like poison and like using fire extinguishers and stuff and then that the game is updated so frequently to sort of like deal with weird issues that have happened like i think they've taken out some of the fire extinguisher exploits that were in the game earlier that you could really cheese that game in some major ways with the fire extinguishers i had not tried any of that stuff so that's fun uh my other piece of stuff that i want to talk about quickly here is mario plus rabbit's kingdom battle right which i Bought today, and I have played through all of World 1, so a good amount of that game, a couple hours, so I got a good feel for it. That's a great game. Awesome. And this is the most surprising thing to happen in gaming, I think, in all of 2017, is that... Sure, yeah. Because I just remember when this... Because this was being rumored for a long time, remember? Yeah, this was like along with the Switch, like yeah. this, was, this has been rumored for over a year now. That Ubisoft and Nintendo were partnering for something with Mario and the Rabbids. Yeah. And I think when we started seeing the key art and the rumors for it, I just kind of rolled my eyes at it. Everyone rolled their eyes at it, and it was like, whatever, we'll see what that is. And then it came out at E3, and it's like, oh, it's not a cell phone game. It's not like a mini game. This is a full thing. Yeah. It's... it's a- Kind of XCOM, yeah, which is a really weird, like, the three most unlikely, like, combinations, Mario, the Rabbids, and fucking XCOM, yeah. all, like, thrown into a blender, and somehow it comes out amazing, So, like, it looked interesting, but there was, like, no way to really get a feel for it, and then people started playing it on the E3 floor and being like, guys, this game is kind of good, and I'm like, okay, well, I have a Switch, I'll, you know, I'll reserve judgment, and then... You know, Nintendo and Ubisoft had done a very good slow drip marketing for this up until release day. Yeah. And and I was already all in by the time the reviews came out because I was just like, I love Mario so much. I have no thoughts on the Rabbids, positive or negative, really. And I like this kind of turn-based strategy. So I will at least give this a try because why not, you know? Uh, but then the reviews came out and they're all glowing. The game's got like a 90 on Metacritic or something. Yeah. It's a huge success. And so I went and bought the game. And by the time I brought the game home, I was excited to play this fucking thing. Which is so crazy because at the beginning of this year, I would have just assumed this was some weird cell phone minigame. You exactly, know? yeah. And here it is. And it is so good. And I think the number one thing you, sh- you need to know about this game and whether or not you will like it is watch the E3 unveiling at the Ubisoft press conference and the director of the game is in the audience, and the, the you know Eves Gimon calls him out. Yeah, and the guy just starts crying because it's like I got to direct a fucking Mario game. Yeah, because Miyamoto also was up on the Ubisoft yep. stage; was a big part of that as well. Yeah, and that's all you need to know that right. the people who made this game, obviously everybody, if you are working as a game designer, you probably love Mario. I don't know. I don't know what trajectory would lead you to game design where you're like, I have no thoughts on Mario, or it's just like I fucking hate Mario, and I'm going to show them how it's done right. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of people like that. And of course, Ubisoft, everyone there probably just loves the shit out of Mario. And they got this opportunity, and they took it seriously. They, there is so much love for Mario and all pieces of the Mario kingdom in this game. And so many little visual Easter eggs, and such good use of the characters. Like, you know, fucking Luigi's special move on the battlefield is Luigi's death stare. From Mario Kart 8. Okay, sure. Which wasn't even from Mario Kart... The meme from Mario Kart 8, you know? 
So they love Mario. The opening cutscene to this game, whether you plan on playing this game or not, go on YouTube, watch the first six minutes, because the whole, like, I'm not going to spoil it, but the plot set up for this game and what it does in the opening scene and where they use some little Mario Easter eggs, it's absolutely hilarious and awesome, and you can tell what a labor of love it was. And on top of that, you know, Ubisoft, when they put their mind to it, they're really good at making video games. They've got, or, you know... Yeah. Depends on which studio you're talking about, I guess. Sure, but, yeah. But usually they're... They pretty, have made a lot of very good games. Yes, yeah. that's what I'll say. And this is one of those. They did. They took this fucking seriously. It is very XCOM-esque. But it's also, like... That means it's actually a pretty deep game. Like, I'm through World 1, which is sort of, for a lot of it, a tutorial world. But by the end of it, I had died a few times. I could tell there was some really deep strategy going on. Like, the actual component parts are simpler than a Fire Emblem or an XCOM... Like, there's not as many things going on. There's no permadeath. They didn't work that in, which... Oh, there's no... You don't get to, like, if Mario dies, there's you go to your home base, and there's just, like, a memorial with Mario's hat on top or something, and just, like, Peaches there crying. They've announced DLC, so maybe they can add a permadeath mode into the Good. game. Yes. Which would be hilarious. Mario and Rabbids, the Iron Man mode. Yes. But, you know, there's not that. There's not, like, a big weapon triangle thing going on. But what it is is pretty smart. Like, when you're on the battlefield, you've got a lot of mobility, and that's actually, I think, the best thing about the battle system is that, unlike a Fire Emblem or something where moving is just getting into position like pieces on a chessboard, this is, I think, in more of an XCOM vein. Like, getting around the area is very important. People have different movement things. Like, Mario has jumping abilities where he can jump on someone's head. Very reminiscent of, like, Paper Mario or something. And... When you're, I, I mean, he jumps on people's head in all the games. I meant, like, in an RPG setting where it right. does extra damage. That's yeah, instead of it being, like, the platformer movie. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's what I meant. And so, but, like, there's pipes on the map. You can jump on enemies. If you run past an enemy, you'll do a slide and do a little damage to them before you end up in a cover area. And there's three levels of cover. There's no cover, half cover, or full cover. Yeah. And if you're in full cover, 100% you won't get hit. If you're in half wow. cover, it's a 50-50 thing. And if you're in no cover, 100% you will get hit. So, I kind of like that because that's that's very much an XCOM mechanic of like the half cover full cover thing. But in XCOM, it's like a you have a fifty eight percent chance of getting no, hit. You have like a ninety six percent. And sometimes it's like it cut the bullshit. It let's like let's yeah get real here. I, I kind of like that they sort of simplified the probability there. In fact, all the simplifications that they have here are actually very good because I think you learn very early on what are your basic moves, what are the rules, and both you and the other team play by those rules. So like it's very predictable, you know, sort of the basics of what can happen, and then that shows you, like, they can quickly start deepening it based on what will happen, and allows them to really showcase very good, like, level and map design, because what I was talking about about the movement is I've already got some movement chains going that are hilarious, where, like, Rabid Peach can hit two people, like, from how I've upgraded her, along her path. So you can, like, hit one person, hit two people, then get into cover, and shoot at one of them, right? But along that path, I might hit two people, and then I might... You know, get to one of my allies, jump on them, go through a pipe, hit another person, go through a pipe, and then wind up in cover and kill someone. Like, there's a ton of stuff that can happen movement-wise. And the level design for each of the map uh, maps and, like, the combat scenarios are outstanding. And so I think the simplified combat really allows them to play to the game's strengths. And then there's different weapon types and things like that. Right. Although each character is associated with a weapon type and a couple of sub-moves and things like that. They never ladle it on too thick. Like, I do think so far, you know, a kid, this could be a good first strategy game. But if you're an adult who loves this kind of game and is relatively good at it, it will challenge you right off the bat. Like, there's some... 
the final boss fight in, in World 1 was pretty hard, and there's one earlier on where there's these enemies called Smashers, which are giant rabbits where when you hit them, they will come and smash you with a giant like hammer or a, like a brick and do like 60 damage to your character, which might be half of your HP. So you have to be really careful, but there's a lot of strategy in that where like Mario and Luigi both have a special move that you can turn on in the last three turns where when another when an enemy is mobile, like moving, if they move in Mario's line of sight, Mario will do an automatic attack during their turn. So if you set it up right, you could like hit the smasher, go to cover, shoot the smasher. While the smasher is moving, if he moves in the right line, Mario and Luigi will both hit him and he'll die before he hits you. So there's a lot of really smart stuff with that. And then the actual like story and the overall presentation and everything where the Mario characters and the rabbits have... I was going to say rabbit characters. They're just the rabbits. I don't think right, they're individual yeah. rabbits. <laughs> Um, have like merged worlds and the rabbits have come to the Mushroom Kingdom and there's one rabbit in particular who has acquired the weird VR headset thing that set this all into motion and is accidentally creating this whole army of like evil rabbits and so in the battles you have to like by you know knocking out the rabbits you actually make them good rabbits again and then they go back to Peach's Castle and build you stuff like the Amiibo Hut or something. Okay. There is a, that's, that's an unnecessary one There's like more important ones Like where you go upgrade your weapons And where you go look at the museum for all your collectibles And things like that But I did just, I realized like after World 1 I'm like, oh no, I have Amiibo Hut Let's see what Amiibo will work with this So anyway um, Have but, they made rabid Amiibos? Is that something they did? I think with this game, like you can get rabid Peach, rabid Luigi Like okay. the specific characters yeah. This is a slippery slope we're it on is. now. I it mean, is. the Amiibo thing was already a slippery slope to begin with, but now we're just letting fucking rabbits on there? Yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so, so that's what's happening with the rabbits, and you have to go through, and you're trying to catch the guy with the weird VR headset. And then, I have not seen Bowser yet, but at some point, baby Bowser comes in to try fucking things up, because, you know, they're not going to be nice about this. So, it's all very fun. The, the graphics are very nice. They're not the nicest Nintendo Switch graphics I've seen, but this is also probably under the hood a more intensive game in terms of some of what it's doing, but it runs sure. pretty well. It's very colorful and looks nice. And most importantly, in terms of presentation, the music is so fucking good, like outstanding. I forget the composer's name, but it's one of the main rare composers from yeah, back like in the, the day. Is it Greg Wiseman that did it? I think or it might be Greg Wiseman. Yeah, Whoever did Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie, yeah, those Greg games. Wiseman, yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Because the other big rare composer who did, like, Donkey Kong Country this year did Snake Pass, um, which was a great score in the game this year. So I like that both of those guys have come back and done big video game scores this year. But, like, throughout, it's just... I just enjoy playing the game just to hear the music and where he'll work in, like, Mario themes and stuff, like, in the Peach's Castle area. It's outstanding. It's another element of just letting a different set of developers get their hands on Nintendo's toys is really fun. Yeah. So it's great. And, you know, the, the rabid characters you have in your lineup, so far I have Rabid Peach and Rabid Luigi. They're a lot of fun. They're fun little characters. And then I've unlocked actual Luigi at this point. I think there's eight or nine total characters you can get. Um, and you can swap them. Like, your party can only have three people at once. So for a battle. And Mario has to be one of the three. So you really can only select two. But you can select as much as you want before a battle. So, like, each battle you could have a different lineup in there. And they all level up together. And that sort of stuff. So it really allows you to have different play styles and whatnot. And I'm excited to get more characters. I did just meet, I don't think he's a party member, but he was a boss, uh, Rabid Donkey Kong. Okay. Which is a very funny thing. Like, so far they've, they've used the... I, again, I don't know anything really about the rabbits. A lot of people clearly hate them if you look at like the discussion online. I mean, they just seem like they and the minions are the ex- exactly. literally the exact same thing. Oh, totally. They, they really are. But what I like about them here is mostly they're doing riffs on Mario stuff. 
And so it's like this is not a game necessarily for big rabid fans if they're out there. Those rabid rabid fans. <laughs> that was not intentional, but there we go. Um, yeah, if you're a rabid rabid fan, I don't know if this is like supposed to be for you as much as it's a Mario game, and then the rabbits are there to have fun. Yeah, they just happen to be like the Ubisoft property right. most appropriate because they weren't going to do the Assassin's Creed Mario crossover. That would have been a little dark. I'd I'd have played it. Maybe yeah. what? Hey, this is step one. Nintendo, if they get more adventurous. I'd play the shit out of that. Mario's the crew. It's Mario Kart, but across America. <laughs> it's, it's just Mario in like a super realistic like Mustang. Tom, Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Wildlands Mario Edition. Yes, yeah, where we send in Mario and crew to go destabilize, destabilize South America, you know, for our like imperialistic purposes. Yeah, but... You know, Mario plus Rabbit's Kingdom Battle, so far, I'm excited to play more of it. Another great game on the Switch, which is having easily the best first year of any console released in my lifetime. I feel pretty confident saying that, if you look at the lineup of games we've had and will have. Um, it is so much fun. And for some reason, whenever Mario does an RPG, it's really good. And this is one of the weirdest things, but it's been true since the Super NES right, and, yeah. and Mario RPG. When Mario goes and does an RPG, it's somehow always great. It's like just one of the things you can rely on in video games. And I love that about it. Yeah. So, And I love Nintendo opening the doors and letting Ubisoft play with this. And I, I want to see if we'll get more of that in the future. Because Mario is very versatile, as we have seen. Right. And it would be fun to see what other things they could do with him. Like, not the jokes we were making, but there's plenty of other things you could do. I mean, eventually, it would. Yeah. Be, I wouldn't mind. Like, if you have to, in order to bring Splinter Cell back, if you have to throw Mario in there, I'll take that to get another Splinter Cell game, okay? Yeah. You know, like, we've got Skyrim Special Edition coming out, and it's got the little, like, Zelda amiibo functionality. Yeah. What if Bethesda does a full Skyrim Mario edition, where it's just, you know, it's reskinned to be very colorful. Yeah, instead of dragons, it's just flying, like, Koopas or something. Yeah. 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 It, it, it fits right on there like a glove. Anyway, what stuff have you been up to, Sean? Uh, I've been up to to a couple of things. Obviously, playing uh, Uncharted: The Lost Legacy took up a lot of my time this week. Um, I've continued my my watch through of Breaking Bad. I am exactly at the halfway point of season five, so I'm at episode eight or whatever. So, as you said last week, it's basically season five A yeah. and season five B, and it's it's good. Like I'm, I'm. It's something that's like it's nice to finally get to the point where it's like, right, okay, I'm at the new stuff of Breaking Bad because I remembered season four pretty well season two and season three kind of got lost in my memory at some point because i think those are unremarkable seasons for a couple of reasons but season but like i, I it's nice to like finally kind of like start closing this chapter of my life where i've had breaking bad in the back of my mind for like six years or something at this point to be like i'm going to get back to it eventually i need to do, remember enough of this that like it makes it worthwhile to go back to it and it's been a kind of a fun process nice. visiting that show See, I easily think season three is the best Breaking Bad season, but 5B would be runner-up for me, so yeah. I'm excited. And I think 5A is the weakest stretch, so I'm excited to see what you think of 5B. Yeah, like, 5A is a weird one, because, like, there's there's parts of me that feel like it's... They take a couple of, like, really glaring narrative shortcuts in uh -huh. places, but at the same time, there's something so nice about the show just being this good, like, fuck it, it's just a crime thing. Like, let's just make a fucking, like, let's just be the Godfather or, like, the Godfather 2 at this point. Like, let's just get there because we've spent fucking, like, 50 episodes trying to get there. And there's, there's just, that's one of the reasons why season 2 and 3 frustrate me is that there's a lot of, in that show, uh, Walt and Jesse waffling between these two character points and not, like... 
heading like in like the like confident sort of direction it feels like the show wants them to head in and keeps on having to sort of come up with narrative reasons to sort of reset their characters in different ways and so that got frustrating to me so I've just enjoyed the like fuck it like let's just go full Scarface with this shit and just be there because it's the point the show has been working towards and there's like a nice sort of culmination in that even if they had to like again like they had to take some pretty significant narrative shortcuts to get there once you get over that I think those the season 5A is a very enjoyable season of TV or whatever, yeah. like a half season of TV. Oh, it's like. it's good by TV standards, totally. Yeah. yeah. So so there's that. The other stuff I've been doing, I haven't like just sort of messing with Sonic Mania here and there. But the other thing I'm I'm happy to have sort of like seen through to like my full satisfaction is I have finished my weird completionist playthrough of Near Automata. So like I have done practically everything there is to do in that game. I've done all the side quests. I leveled up. I I leveled up basically all the weapons. I got all the um pods and leveled all the pods up which is actually not nearly as like painful as i thought it was going to be looking at how to get them and it actually only took me like an hour of listening to a podcast to get like the weird extra resources you need and if you sort of figure out the ways to expedite the process of getting the pure water or whatever fucking random bullshit you need to do that it's not that hard to do but the one thing that is really interesting about playing Nier Automata, once you have done all that stuff and you have this, like, super completely, utterly maxed out character, is that that game is fucking insane when you are that powerful. Like, the stuff that upgrading your pods does of, like, the laser pod ends up shooting out, like, a hundred weird, like, homing projectiles every time it, like, recharges and you can press the button again. And that will, if you get up close on something, will just shred basically any enemy in the game um if you know how to do it you can get to level 99 in about 15 minutes and you like there's like a way like if you use like stack up on xp gain plug-in chips and all that kind of stuff and like if you know how to game some of the plug-in chip stuff um once you're later in the the game there's just like a surprising amount of depth to the uh, character customization in that game once you are like at that level of it that is actually a lot of fun to engage with and just like go through that game and just steamroll everything um other than the like the the sort of significant challenge that is left for you at the end of that game is that there is a secret boss that is kind of like a two-stage secret boss that is kind of like the last side quest in the game and that that is a really that's just something that if people have not like for understandable reasons if you haven't seen it because you have to basically be level 99 to, to to do that boss fight i would recommend going on youtube and watching it because it is a really interesting fight, and like what they do narratively with the character that's involved um, is was like really emotionally affecting in a way I didn't like expect it to be for something that's like a weird hidden extra thing that's at the end of the game. It's it's a really one. It's a really interesting, fun boss fight, and two, it has like a narrative wrapping around it that's really powerful. So, do you have all the trophies in that now? Too? Um, not quite, because some of the trophies are just like weird. Like I could go in and buy the trophies because there's something there. I have all the trophies that are like. Like, upgrade all the weapons, get, like, to do, like, do all the side quests. I have all, like, the ones that feel meaningful. There's just a bunch of, like, little random ones, like, travel 50 kilometers on the back of an animal and, and stuff like that that I could go with. All those mechanics up. in the game that have no purpose for being there? I mean, they, they have a purpose if you're doing a completionist run because there are, like, okay. there, are, there are areas of, like, if you're trying to get all the different enemy varieties, it is useful to be able to travel distances on, on a boar or whatever and be able to, like, get there quickly and stuff. Like, there are... There, there's like le- there's a level to that game that is something that you don't access unless you are like doing a completionist playthrough. Like there's a there's a surprising amount of hidden stuff in that game and like hidden areas and stuff that's cool to see. The other thing about Nier Automata that I want to talk about because it's really crazy is I just enjoyed that game so much that even though I 
does, wasn't super interested in the pitch of the DLC. I was like, it's DLC. Because it was like on sale for a little bit when I bought, picked it up. I was like, I'll buy this like weird like piece of like $8 DLC or whatever. That is mostly what I understood it to be just like a series of combat arenas. Which it mostly is. And it is fun. It is fun being able to sort of engage with the combat in this more like sort of focused sort of challenge arena space. That is what like the, the bulk of that DLC is. And there's one of the arenas... Um, that you go into as 9S, you have to complete as different um, hacked robots and fight as the hacked robots. And that's fun to do because you don't have a huge amount of opportunity to play around with those mechanics in the game otherwise. So the DLC is, is I would not necessarily say like for that stuff, it's worth just going and picking up and playing it immediately. It is if you are doing a secondary playthrough of Nier Automata, it is fun to be able to do that stuff while you're leveling up because it's sort of, you, you hit the other challenges as you go through the game. The thing about the DLC that is fucking crazy that I had no idea was there is there's this whole thing at the end that I had never saw hinted. Like, this is not the... I'm sure, like, everybody, if you were, like, mildly curious about Nier Automata, saw that there was, like, a part of the... A secret part of the DLC is, like, a special boss fight that's with the, like, CEO of Square Enix and stuff. It's, like, there's weird stuff there. But that was publicized. There's, a, like, the ending of the DLC has this crazy fucking coda to it that just kind of comes out of nowhere. And if it's okay with you, Jonathan, I'd like to be able to just spoil it. I'm never going to yeah, play you're it. You're not so yeah. going to play because you'd have to play through the whole game to, to get to it. And so this is, if you do not want to know about this at all, like skip ahead in the podcast a little bit. I think it's like, it's cool. If you have bought the DLC, like play through all the DLC and see this thing fresh. Like don't let that be spoiled. But like, if you haven't bought the DLC, I think it's fine to listen to this because it's a lot of work to go through to see it. But so basically what happens is... Um, the DLC is framed, as with a lot of DLC, as you just get this, like, mysterious letter from something, and that you're like, oh, like, you should, like, go to this place, and it's like a series of coordinates, and it's like the, so the series of quests that you follow to get to the different, the three different arenas that are, that are in the game, is called the Mysterious Invitation. And at first, I thought that was just like when you buy a piece of DLC in Skyrim, and you just like a random dude walks up and is like, "Here's a letter," and you read the letter. It's like, "Oh, hello, Dragonborn. The stuff you bought is over here, but like couched in like lore terms. It's like this is where you go to like see the thing that you paid fifteen dollars to see." And I thought that was the extent of it. But once you, if you you beat all the arenas, you get a like update on that quest. That is like you get another thing of coordinates that brings you to a fourth location. It's like. This is weird because I saw everything like because I like completed all of those challenges and then completed like the extra special challenge you have to do. I thought I saw everything that was in this weird piece of DLC. What is the fuck is in this place? So you go to the amusement park area and when you're at the amusement park, one of the walls has been like pushed back and there's an elevator back there and you go down the elevator and you end up in a room that is basically a carbon copy of the um, 9S game hacking uh or game creation side quests, if you played those, it's like that kind of room. And you go in there, and there's like a little TV. And, and there's like, what is on this the TV? This is weird. And you go into the TV. And then what follows is like a really interesting, cool, like 10-minute story thing where you play from the perspective of this robot called Plato 4672 or something like that. It's some number who's a it's like kind of dysfunctional combat robot. And you're seeing this recording and kind of playing as him from the events like leading up to the game, like you see the big construction robots like Marks and Angles being built here. So it's like kind of gives you this framework of where it's being set. And it's this fun little, like you're just kind of like walking around and get to talk to the robots and kind of get this interesting, like the robot side of things in like that small perspective. 
And then you slowly get the sense of like, okay, like this robot you're playing as is dysfunctional. He doesn't work very well. His arm is all fucked up. And like there's just circuits popping out. And every once in a while he just kind of breaks down for a second and takes half a second to sort of like put himself back together and keep on walking. And you go through a couple of little story sections with him. And at the end of each section, he talks to you, the player, basically in the first person. It's like, I am Plato 7642. Like, I am a combat robot. But I do not like to fight is the last thing he says. And then the next story section is from an engineer robot's point of view. And it's just like, oh, that's kind of weird. And like, why am I playing as this other dude? And you're just walking through this engineer robot. But as you talk to the other robots, you get these little snippets about how Plato, apparently in the last battle, went crazy and just went nuts and destroyed, like, like was killing friendly robots and the androids and was just going crazy. And you're like, what the fuck happened? Because the last thing I played as Plato was, was my ass getting kicked by a giant robot in, like, a trial fight that there's no way to win. How did he go from there and saying, like, I am Plato 7642, I do not like to fight, and go to, like, snapping and killing everything? And when you get to the end of that story segment, you find out, uh, you get another first-person piece of narration from Plato that tells you that he had only one friend in the whole world, which was a doll he found, like a human doll, that none of the other robots liked to talk to him, and he had this doll, and this doll was like, he would find this doll after his combat training where he just got, like, basically shot to pieces by these other robots and just hang out with this doll and talk to it. It's a lifeless doll, so it couldn't do anything with him, but he just talks to it, and then, and he leaves it in this factory... And then when the androids come and attack, they blow up the factory and destroy the doll, and that's what sends him crazy. So it's like it's a nice, fun little like like dark near automata esque story. What's fucking nuts is what immediately follows that is a live action music video set to a J Rock song where you have a CGI version of like the big weird like bulbous robot dude in a control room watching a video of this like this like really well cut like actually like really disturbing music video of these like ru- like rugged dirty like kind of half destroyed dolls in this factory just getting destroyed in like really sadistic ways like drills being shot into their head and they're just being crushed and set on fire and you watch it it's like a full three minute long music video and you watch the whole thing and it's fucking crazy because it just comes Utterly out of nowhere, you just cut to live action, like all this live action footage, what seems like a really nicely produced music video, it seems like it's fairly expensive, like it's all, like these the actual collections of really nice looking dolls that they just utterly brutalize, and you don't realize that side of like, everyone, like most people find those kinds of like, you know, the porcelain weird like girl dolls kind of creepy, and it's like the horror movie thing. But you don't think about how they are simulacrums of humans, like they look like humans, and seeing them be tortured and torn apart, after you watch that for like two minutes, it's kind of disturbing and fucked up. And it makes you think about some shit that is actually like really thematically resonant with the entire plot of Near Automata in a way that I was utterly taken aback by. Because again, I heard nothing about this. I had no idea that this was in the game. And that's what they choose to end the DLC with. And that is the last thing I have done in Nier Automata is watch that fucking music video. And it dumps you out to the main menu. And I turned off the game and I was like, that's it. I can't go back to this game for like five more years or something at least. Because this has been one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had in video gaming. This whole bizarre, beautiful thing that Nier Automata is. Boy, I uh, don't think I have anything to add to that. Yeah, I would just recommend go just go on YouTube. I'm sure you can find the music video somewhere. Just use you know search terms to go f- track it down because I don't remember what the name of the song is. But watch that music video because it's really good. It's really fucked up. It's a crazy way for them to like 
send Nier Automata out with the DLC they released like two months after launch. Alright, let's move on to some news. Alright. A uh, couple pieces of news here. First, let's follow up our big news item from last week, which was the great Super NES classic pre-order fuck-up of 2017. Part 2. Yes. On Friday, Walmart briefly had pre-orders. Oh, and it was they? very confusing... And I'm actually part of this story in a weird way. Yes, I've followed this on Twitter from a lot of people, including you. Uh, all right. So, like I said, Walmart, it was very confusing because Walmart actually opened a separate second page. Um, so if you were using your old Walmart page, that never had pre-orders up. You had to go to the second one that was kind of hidden that they opened, which was good. That's how you stop, like, bots and stuff. So sure. that was nice of them. And when this happened, I happened to... It's actually very funny. I was editing an upcoming Let's Play video that we made... And I, like, finished editing it, and I closed the window of Final Cut and opened Twitter just because it's like, I haven't checked Twitter in a while. And, like, the first tweet was someone saying, oh, my God, it's up on Walmart. And so I just totally by happenstance, I was there, ground zero, pre-ordered it, you know, gave them my credit card. It's all on Walmart. And I had a Walmart account from the last time there was a SNES Classic pre-order there that did not go through. Yeah. Anyway, uh, which is an important part of this story. And I pre-ordered a Super NES Classic. And I was like... I was very skeptical. I was not, like, celebrating or anything. Right. I was like, well, we'll see what comes of this. Um, and what came of that was, then I went and was doing some other stuff because I was finishing up some video production. And about 20 minutes later, I realized, I haven't gotten an email about this. This, this was probably a mistake. Right. And then I look online, and I look at my account, I'm like, oh, it's not even showing up on my Walmart account. This is weird. And then I went to my bank, and I'm like, but they've charged me $85. And at that point, I'm like, well... I need to get this sorted out. Right, yeah, because you do not want to be cha- charged $85 for a Super Nintendo Classic you're not going to get. Yeah, and despite protestations of weird fanboys, one of which, I got my first death threat on Twitter, by the way, for oh, this. congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did report, apparently, uh, not a terms of service violation. So, yeah. Well, no, can... I mean, of course not. Be, no, the thing, there's no reason for Twitter to crack down on death threats. It's just totally normal. Anyway, um, yeah, I got my first death threat on Twitter for this, but what people were saying was, because I complained, like, one of the things I said on Twitter during all of this is like, this doesn't happen for any other product I've ever ordered online. Why does this only happen for this specific brand of Nintendo product? And people were like, you must have never ordered online then because this happens for everything. It's like, no. It's like, Sean, you order online a lot. Does this happen for anything else? We're like, no. Like the email is just delayed for four hours. No. It's yeah. so bizarre. Like, and I look. My Nintendo bona fides, I think, are pretty well set. Absolutely. I have, I have gotten all of the 3DS models: the original, the 3DS XL, the new 3DS XL on launch day, and this has not happened to me. I've gotten countless Nintendo special editions, the Switch, you know, all of this stuff. Some would <clears> say <throat> that maybe your relationship with Nintendo is slightly unhealthy. Yes. Um, no. So <laughs> maybe not as unhealthy as the people who like. We're being weird online about this. No. But no, it's like, this doesn't happen for other stuff. So, fuck right off with that first. So, I think I was right to be a little concerned. And I got on... Because Walmart has, like, a customer chat thing. And I just wanted to ask about it. Like, is it delayed in the system? Something like this. And they were able to... And and basically, I went through the chat with this woman. And she finally said, yeah, it looks like this was a mistake. I don't think this is supposed to happen. We're not going to sell them until September 29th. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. This is probably actionable news. And I took a screenshot and I tweeted it. This got retweeted by Jason Schreer of Kotaku, yeah. which led to a clusterfuck in my Twitter mentions. And, again, the death threat and all stuff. And a lot of people... The, my favorite one was the, like, conspiracy theory of, like, if you tell customer service that's when they cancel them, you fucked it up for everyone. 
That's like, I don't think that's how it works, guys. Yeah. Anyway. It's not like quantum physics. It's yeah. not like when you observe it, then yeah. it, like, disappears. And I feel slightly bad for all of this. Not for any of those reasons, but because... And again, I just tweeted something that customer... I thought it was interesting to put out there because yeah. everyone was confused. And, yeah, you know, it did finally show up in my Walmart order history about two hours later. And I got an email about four and a half hours later. Again, I would not call that a normal situation. No. But anyway, so it, and it's in there. It's, it's been long enough, and Walmart has not addressed it, that I think this might be genuine. Again, I don't have my hopes up. I have, whenever I go to my Walmart order history page, I have my current Super NES pre-order. And right beneath it, the canceled one from July, where they canceled everyone's, right? Yeah. So... I don't have my hopes up necessarily. It does seem like these were real and they went through and the customer service agent was probably confused, which is totally understandable. Yeah. But it's like, this just speaks to the whole clusterfuckery of all of this, right? That it, yeah. it happened again. It was very confusing. Walmart is the only retailer that's had this second round of pre-orders. These ones did last like two minutes, so about twice as long as the previous round. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm happy I have a pre-order. Don't know if it'll actually go through, um, but we'll see. People have, are still reaching out to me on Twitter asking, like, D- did you get your email or something? It's like, yeah, so I have it. Um, that doesn't mean it, something can't go south with this eventually. because yes. again, we have been through this rodeo with Walmart once before yes. in this, this sordid tale of ours. And it's just, you know, and my question, and again, it doesn't reduce, like, my frustration with the whole thing that I might actually get one of these. Right. I, I'm happy I will. I'll get to cover it on the podcast, and I'll get to play it and all that stuff. But I would like it if everyone could do that. And I'd like it if it was clear when you're ordering what's happening with your money and that sort of yeah. thing. Like, again, I just come back to the main point I made on Twitter on Friday, which is I would like someone from Walmart, Amazon, Target, GameStop, or God forbid, Nintendo themselves, to explain why with this one item, this is how the internet works. Because it's very weird. You know? Because, like, when I go buy tickets to a Bruce Springsteen concert online, that's a pretty hot item. Those sell out pretty fast. You know what they do on, like, altitude tickets or something? They put you in a waiting lobby, and, like, they fill it in queues, and then, like, they release, and, like, okay, these next thousand people can go buy their tickets. And... You don't have issues where, like, oh, shit, we sold row 5A ten times and we have to cancel it. You know? That doesn't yeah. happen for, like, concerts and stuff. So I'm just saying, like... Or, like, the Nintendo Switch. Yes, like, sure. like they they Like, the issue with the Nintendo Switch is that, like, they could have, like, hopefully made more of them. But it wasn't, like, there were, like, the stories of people at the time just being, like, well, I ordered my Nintendo Switch from Walmart four hours ago and I haven't heard anything from them since. And then it's, like, well, I guess Walmart put up the pre-orders for no reason. And then it's, like, then they yeah. do it again. That shit didn't happen. No, the Nintendo Switch I ordered, I ordered two. One for me, one for my brother. On Best Buy, got the email immediately, and it was fine. Yeah. Like, yeah. The like, way that you order something on the... It's 2017. It's not 1997, yeah. where, like, you would expect, like, well, I ordered the new a new book from Amazon.com, the internet bookseller, and, like, I think I might get an email within two days by, like, Pony or something. This is the wild fucking West. It's 2017. We know how the internet works now. Yeah. So... Anywho, I hope mine actually comes. I'd enjoy playing it. Are my hopes up? No. I still think it's probably a coin toss. Like, like, what do you think the percentage chance is that all of this is a dream and you're going to wake up tomorrow realizing that none of this happened? It's like, ah, fuck. A dream? I, I don't think it's a dream because I've been through this song and dance before. 
the but I think that's the reason why it's a dream okay. is because your mind was thinking about it already from because like think about it it's it's like the Walmart thing already happened and fucked you over and then then now all of a sudden happens again but you don't get fucked over how is that not dream logic Jonathan? if the works of David Lynch have taught us anything it's that anything could be a dream yeah so you're going to like leave my house and then like a man covered in garbage is going to slide out of nowhere and you're going to freak out and wake up speaking of um, Nintendo fuckery. We also got confirmation. Fire Emblem Warriors, the uh, Koei Tecmo one. Yes, the Dynasty Warriors style Warriors Fire style. Emblem game. Not yeah. the gotcha game that is Fire Emblem Heroes on mobile devices. Right. Fire Emblem Warriors uh, on Switch did get its uh, release date for, an in- for America. It's October 20th. I don't understand everyone's strategy this year, which is not just one area, but like the same week in October, we're going to dump every game on the planet. Yeah, like another, you know, that's nine days away from Super Mario Odyssey, the big Nintendo game of the fall. So I don't really get it, but whatever. I do want to play this game, so I'm going to have a very busy and expensive October. It also has a special edition. And it's a special edition that looks cool because it's got a three-disc fucking soundtrack. Okay. And I saw that and I was immediately like, it's never ending. I w- this, this hell of trying to get Nintendo pre-orders for these things, it's never going to stop. And they know it. They know it. Yeah. And they're going to get my money. Anyway, so I'm waiting for it to go up on Best Buy so I can pre-order that. With, I, have their, I, I recently got Best Buy's Gamers Club Unlocked thing because oh, yeah. Amazon has kept rolling back their Prime benefits for yeah. their game savings. I really recommend the Best Buy thing. You save on fucking everything. You save on Amiibo. It's nuts. So Oh, well, i got to get on it now. I'm going to save on all those hot Amiibo I'm, I'm just I'm just saying. It's crazy how much you can, like, they take stuff off on. So I'm waiting for it to go up there. And it has, that's the last one that has not gone up on yet. But anyway, uh, I am looking forward to Fire Emblem Warriors. Although, within all of this, when this announcement came out, I realized there's a lot of people who are proactively very angry at this game. Because oh. the roster is mostly drawn from the recent oh. 3DS Fire Emblems and, and a little bit from the original one with Marth. And on one hand, I get it, why the frustration, because everyone has a different favorite Fire Emblem game. There's yeah. a lot of Fire Emblem no games. No Lindus, no Sale. That's what I say. But at the same time, to me, it's like, guys, those are far and away the most popular three, yeah. uh, Fire Emblem games. Like, if you want people to come to your Fire Emblem spinoff, it needs to be the characters the most people know. I, you know, and we'll see if, if in the actual game there's more Easter eggs and stuff. It won't stop me. I, I love the recent 3DS one, so I'm, I'll have fun with it. Would I enjoy Lindis in a Fire Emblem Warriors game? Absolutely. But I reiterate, no Lindis, no sale. I also don't own a Switch or a 3DS, so there's okay. no sale either way. But if I yes. did, you got to get Lindis in that thing or I'm not, I'm not, anyway, I'm not chomping. I, my, the funniest thing to me is just the Fire Emblem Warriors on October 20th. Mario Odyssey on October 27th. Nintendo is like at this point rubbing their faces in. Look how much first party games we have for our our system in year one. Yeah. We don't even have to space them out. And it's like, well, maybe you should a little bit. Yeah, but like, I, you, could, you could release Fire Emblem Warriors whatever the fuck you, you want. want. Right, yeah. Whoever is going to play that game will play that game. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, uh, busy year with all that. Uh, Sean, you had an item on our news list next, which was some controversy that I did not follow around okay. Half-Life 2 Episode 3 this week, so I'm curious yeah. to hear what it is. Yeah, so because you haven't played the Half-Life games, right? No, so I Yeah, haven't. so you're outside of the sphere, so it makes sense that you wouldn't have followed this. Yeah. But it, there was a, it was a whole weird, like really strange turn of events that happened like really late on night. I think it was, it was either Saturday night or Sunday night. But like I, I saw it happen basically live on the internet. It was like, it was one of those things where it's like, I'm about to go to sleep and I look at my phone before I put it into charge and then like I see one thing it's like, wait, Mark Laidlaw, the head writer for the Half-Life series, like for Half-Life 1, 2, and the two episodes, 
released a basically what the plot synopsis of Half-Life 2 Episode 3 was going to be, and he did this at 1 in the morning for, like, Mountain Time. Asshole. I was about to go to sleep, and now I'm going to be up until, like, 3 in the morning processing all this shit. Because I'm a huge fan of Half-Life. I have been since, like, I started with Half-Life 2 when the Orange Box came out, and then when I got a PC that was, that ran something more modern than, like, Windows 2003, I managed to be like, okay, now I can play, like, the original Half-Life and play um, Half-Life 2 on PC and all that stuff. And so, like, I love Half-Life and Half-Life 2. They're games I play, replay every couple of years. I've, like, played Half-Life 1 probably four or five times at this point. It's just, like, a game I go back to a lot. And... Uh, it's, so it's it's a franchise I care a lot about. The story is not the most interesting part of Half Life, but it is an interesting part of Half Life, and it's like an important weird thing to me. And for those who haven't played Half Life, like Half Life Two Episode Two ended on a massive cliffhanger, just a massive middle finger fuck off cliffhanger. That if they had released Episode Three within the year, the way that they had said they were going to do multiple times, it would have been fine. The way that like if a TV episode ends on a big cliffhanger, it's like okay, yeah, like we'll pick this up next week or like a couple of months if like you know it's a split season thing or whatever, and we'll follow on from the end of that episode. But like Half Life Two Episode Two ends with a massive, like, named main character who had been with the series, like, basically since Half-Life 1 and then kind of got made more formally into a character in Half-Life 2, kind of in almost, like, Sergeant Johnson away from Halo. Like, he's killed off in this hugely surprising fashion at the end of Episode 2, right when you feel like the plot's moving in to set up Episode 3. This character's killed off, and it's, like, smash cut to black, and it's like, okay. Again, normally that would have just been fine. That's where you leave it off, and that's where Episode 3 comes out. Half-Life 2 Episode 2, this October, will be 10 years old. (laughs) 10 years, Jonathan. For context, Half-Life 1 came out in 1998, and Half-Life 2 came out in 2004. That is a six-year difference between Half-Life 1 and Half-Life 2. It's almost been 10 fucking years since Half-Life 2 Episode 2. And remember, we're going to talk about Uncharted later. This is the 10th anniversary game for Uncharted. So in those 10 years, Uncharted has... Done five games and ended. Mass Effect started and then died this year. Yeah. A horrible flame. I mean, death. you're talking about literally the other than like the first year, the entirety of the 360 and PS3 generation of video games happened. Like, yes. like we finished those and got started like halfway through this generation. That's the amount of time in like video game terms has passed since Half Life Two Episode Fucking Two came out. Shenmue Three is in active development. Yes, the last Guardian, the last Guardian got announced and fucking like released in that span of time, Jonathan. Yes, and we thought it never would happen. It's like that's it's an absurd amount of time in video game terms. It's fucking ridiculous, and so that's a, like I had given up on Valve ever like following up on half-life years ago now and that when we'll like follow this up after i get through this like the half-life 2 episode 3 stuff i think with a larger discussion about valve at this point because it's something worth talking about um but anyways that's the setup of if you have not been following half-life like that's where if you're a big half-life fan like me that's where i've been stewing for like eight years or whatever of like like the actual i should say eight years ago was about when i was like okay maybe episode 3 isn't happening and it's just been like it's definitely not happening since then and so you're maybe understand my like shock and surprise at Mark Laidlaw, who's again like one of the main writers from Valve, who worked on Half Life One and all the Half Life games. Where um, is he now, by the way? Um, he left Valve, I think, early last year. Okay. He was like, I think he was one of the first of a slow trickle of basically every single writer from Valve has left over the past like two years because Valve is does not make video games anymore. Um, 
And so he finally just kind of came out because he's also been like giving weird, like random interviews and stuff. Or like, I mean, people have been asking him for interviews where they will ask him about Half-Life 3 and Episode 3 stuff. And he gives, he's been giving like sort of circuitous answers about it for a while. Uh, and so it just seems like he just decided to put up on his blog this thing called Epistle 3, which is basically a like, it's, it's this like almost like, you know, the names changed for like to protect their identity thing version of a plot synopsis of Half-Life 2 Episode 3 that is a totally, like, as someone who really loved those games, like, a totally plausible and, like, actually, like, really good story of, like, oh, this would... If they had made this, who knows about, like, what the the game design would have been, but as, like, a story, this would have been a great follow-up to Half-Life 2 Episode 2. It, like, puts a close to the Half-Life 2 sort of, like, series of events and lore and kind of, like, you know, like, resolves the death of that major character. It resolves, like, the, like, stuff that happened in Half-Life 2, like, the original Half-Life 2 that kind of was ignored in Episode 1 and 2. There's, like, lots of cool little details in there. Um, and it's also, it's just a really, if you if you haven't read it and you are a fan of Half-Life, I highly recommend reading it. Like, not just for, like, the narrative content, but also, like, the thing is written in this sort of, like, first-person perspective from... I forget what the, like, the, the narrative voice is, but it's basically it's Gordon Freeman talking to some, like, unnamed person. Um, but it's but it's also Mark Laidlaw, the writer, like, like getting this out here and saying, like, this was, like, part of my life's work and this has been stewing for ten years and, and you have been waiting for it. And, like, this... It's, like, a defining chapter of his career in his life. Like, he was a novelist before he started working at Valve, which informed some of his approach there. But, like, that's, it's a huge chunk of his life was spent there working on this franchise. Because, again, he was there since 1998 working on Half-Life 1. And so there's this really kind of touching personal side of it as well. But it also just is, like, this final stamp on Half-Life. And, and, and fittingly enough, the plot synopsis for Episode 3, as it undoubtedly would have, ends with basically a cliffhanger as well for, like, an eventual actual Half-Life 3 it is, but it is the kind of, because Half-Life 1 and Half-Life 2 both also end on cliffhangers, but it's a much more, like, the story has wrapped, and it's, like, gives you this exciting note to end things on, like, the end of Doom from 2016 sure, or something. Sure. It's not like, oh, shit, we killed a fan-favorite character, what the fuck's gonna happen next, who knows? That's a very different kind of cliffhanger, but it, it did, like, reading that, like, it made me weirdly emotional to just, like, all of a sudden, it was also probably because I was very tired, and so I was, like, in this not you know, totally their state, but I have this, like, brought back all these, like, memories of, like, fuck, right, like, Half-Life, I love these games so much, and how much does it fucking suck that this is the way that it had to end? That's, like, they didn't release, you know, like, a short, like, animated movie, they didn't make a comic book, which which Valve has published comic book series before, because, you know, in that 10-year span where they didn't produce any, like, or, like, like not quite in years span. Since, like, 2011 with Portal 2, they have not produced any, like, single-player narrative-focused games, but they've had, like, six or seven writers on staff since then. So they've been busy just putting out Team Fortress 2 comics and stuff because those writers had to do fucking something, I guess. Um, so they've put out comic books. Like, they've put out weird web comics. they put out short stories. They could have written a Half-Life or, like, had Eric Laidlaw write a Half-Life novel or something to wrap up this story. And instead, Valve has just sat on this franchise for ten years, basically said nothing about it, occasionally alluding to, like, we're kind of working on it, and it's, like, a big open secret that they have started development and scrapped development on a number of different versions of Half-Life 3 that have never seen the light of, like, any element have not seen the light of day. Uh, and it just really sucks that the way this all has to come out is just Eric Laidlaw eventually just being like, 
I assume and hope he probably had like the blessing of at least someone from Valve to go out. The, like, well, has there been any public blowback towards him on this? Um, not from Valve. No. Okay. Like, yeah. And and, and well, it, God, that speaks to how far gone the project is. Yeah. That like he just gets to go out there and like put out his plot synopsis, and he did on Twitter sort of like couch it in. And understandably, of who knows if the if episode three had ever actually been made, how the story would have changed because obviously the if, you know stories yeah. for video games change dramatically over the course of the development to accommodate, particularly for like a Half Life game, to accommodate the kinds of mechanics and stuff they're going to employ. But the 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 story synopsis he did give like had weird time travel stuff in it near the end that seemed really cool. That would have been a cool gameplay mechanic. But who knows how like if episode three again would have been produced. I'm sure a lot of those, like, the specific details would have changed. But I think the general arc of the story very much feels like this is what they were building up to. This is what they were hinting at at the end of Episode 2. All this fits. It makes perfect sense. It reads really well. It's a great end to that story. And it is a nice sort of, like, coda on that area of my life that I no longer... Like, it, it is a weird bit of closure. But with that closure also comes this sort of, like... Frustration and, like, honestly, anger at Valve as a company that has been brewing for me it's, for a while. It's one of the saddest things of the last ten years in gaming was yeah. to watch one of the greatest game developers squander everything they had. Yeah, and and in favor of, I mean, it's capitalism at work. It is the, one of the yeah. purest examples of capitalism at work, where all this creative talent, they just, oh, I was going to try the Steam thing. The money rolls in, and it's like. Everything else goes by the wayside. Yeah. Everything else. And that's it. And, yeah, I mean, it, it feels like such a distant memory, the days of, like, oh, Portal 2 just came out, and it's so awesome, and no one's making games like this, yeah. and this feels so revolutionary. Can't wait to see what they do next. Dot, dot, yeah. dot. Like, because Portal 2 came out, like, it, like we talked about Portal 2 on, like, one of the earliest episodes of any podcast we ever did. Yeah. We talked about Portal 2. Yeah, it, uh, it would predate... This the weekly stuff podcast, the two hundred plus episodes of it, and it would actually predate even um, some of the precursor podcasts we did. The first time we would talk about Portal Two was in our first year end episode yeah. on a show we did called the Monthly Ten. Yes, that would have been back in the Monthly Ten days, yeah. which is like the earliest. Yeah, like that's pre monthly stuff. Like that's, that's super pre early. pre you being the regular like you and me hosting yeah, it exactly. Yeah. So it was nuts. Yeah, it's been a long time. And, yeah, it and, and it's so defined like that that part that generation the early 360 generation was so defined by Left 4 Dead Left 4 Dead 2 Portal 2 yeah. Valve was on and then the orange box came out it felt like they were on this unstoppable roll and what stopped it oh we can make more money selling hats basically yeah right? like, like I have the, the Valve sort of like video game history or whatever on, on Wikipedia I'm just going to like read off the games and then like kind of like the year and I think you will see something kind of weird happen near the end so it, it should be noted like like some of these games were not like exclusively developed by Valve like some were like expansion packs and stuff but anyways Half-Life 19, November 1998 Team Fortress Classic April 1999 Half-Life Opposing, Opposing Forces which was an expansion pack November 1999 Counter-Strike November 2000 uh, Ricochet 2000 that's like a weird thing they ignore Ricochet Everyone ignored Ricochet. The uh, Half-Life Deathmatch Classic, uh, which was the multiplayer mode for Half-Life 1, uh, June 2001. Half-Life Blue Shift, another expansion, June 2001. Day of Defeat, uh, a big multiplayer game, May 2003. So you see there's no 2002 game. Like, the first time a year has been skipped. 
Um, then some weird Counter-Strike stuff like Counter-Strike Condition Zero, which was a Counter-Strike 1 expansion, March 2004. Counter-Strike Source, October 2004, the first Source game. A big update of, like, I, the Counter-Strike I played is all Counter-Strike Source. It's an awesome game. Then Half-Life 2, November 2004. Uh, Dave Defeat Source, a multiplayer game, September 2005. Uh, Half-Life 2, Episode 1, June 2006. Half-Life 2, Episode 2, October 2007. Portal, October 2007. Uh, Team Fortress 2, October 2007. That is the orange box there. Um, then Left 4 Dead, November 2008. Left 4 Dead 2, November 2009. Uh, Alien Swarm, July 2010. That was like a weird indie game they put out. That is, is kind of fun. Uh, Portal 2, April 2011. Counter-Strike Global Offensive, uh, August 2012. And Dota 2, July 2013. Though Dota 2 was technically July 20, or the 2011. It was just in beta for two years, but it was out in 2011. And then uh, after July 2013, you have... Uh, Counter-Strike Online 2 that was launched in Korea uh, in 2013 you had Left 4 Dead Survivors which is a Japanese light gun game from December 2014 um, you had The Lab which is the April 2016 compilation of uh, basically VR you know tech demos and then you have uh, their new up- upcoming game I don't know if you've heard about this Jonathan they're making a new game that's going to come out in 2018 called Artifact do you, do you know what Artifact is Jonathan? Uh, you Hats uh, you're close. I will tell you what the uh, subtitle for Artifact is: the Dota 2 card game. Okay. Well, yes. there you go. So that's yeah. That trend- that's the sad story of Valve yeah. in a gameography. Yes. After Counter Strike Global Offensive, which was the Counter Strike update they did to be able to exploit all the new monetizations ep- uh, efforts and stuff they had made into Steam, and of course Dota 2, which is you know just a prettier remake of a Warcraft 3 mod I played in like 2003 so I don't like I like Dota 2 is hugely popular in the esports scene and everything but also it's like kind of hard for me to really consider it to be a new game it's more like a lot of great spectator features and a lot of gross monetization on a super old video game that maybe the legality of Dota 2 is kind of questionable in the first place um just nothing like this has ever happened in the history of gaming where you had a studio that made such great games and was so successful and beloved. And Valve didn't go away. Valve didn't go under. Valve no, didn't... they're more successful than ever in yeah. terms of, like, finances. Um, but they just stopped with the things that made people love them. And they are... What's most heartbreaking is they are completely okay being a hated company. Because mm-hmm. no one likes Steam. No one likes Valve customer service. No one likes interfacing with Valve anymore. Yeah. They are okay being reviled... As long as they keep making dim bucks. Yeah, and and coming up with ways to monetize their consumers and players that, to me, like, on the outside, frankly, get, like, really disgusting at some point. Uh-huh. The ways that they monetize the international with the prize pool, that they basically pull the prize pool from people playing Dota 2 that are buying microtransactions. But then, of course, every single step of the way, Valve is getting their cut of that, which then the larger prize pool for the international tournament means it gets way more, uh, you know... <clears throat> publishing and stuff and, and publication and so you have you know they have marketing deals with ESPN they, they get all the money they get from selling merchandise at the international and like their specific international 2017 specific like hats and items and stuff and, and all like the, the catering and food that they sell there is like every single step of the way it's just this giant weird gross monopoly that they just take a cut out of everything and along the way they're, they're literally exploiting the labor of the people that pay them money to play their fucking video games and that's the most late capitalism thing that has ever fucking happened 
it's sad. I mean, it would it would not be that much a cut of their profits to have a team at Valve make a Half Life three or make a Left for Dead three or a Portal, any of those. Yeah, it wouldn't be much of it. And what it would make them back in terms of like customer satisfaction of like, all right, Valve does a lot of gross things, but you know what? They're still making cool video games, so that's cool. No, they're not even going to take the cut to do that. Yeah. And the whole thing is disgusting. And, you know, I think in another 10 years, Valve, ultimately the history of Valve, there will have been a very short period historically where they made games and a very long period where they were a pretty gross leech on the video game industry that made PC gaming, you know, big again, but at an interesting and debatable cost. Yeah. I mean, it's just the kind of thing that I think back to that, like, the late 2000s, like, you know, around 2010. I forget the exact year it was, but EA got voted, like, the most hated company or whatever, and, like, the worst company in America from some ridiculous bullshit. Because the, the poll was given online, so, of course, it's not going to yeah, be yeah. Walmart that actually, like, legitimately exploits its worker force and, like, it, you know, destroys local markets and stuff like that. It's going to be EA. And I, but I think about that, and I think about, like, dude... Yeah, like, EA every once in a while, like, did something kind of weird or questionable. And, like, obviously, like, there's, you know, stuff with, like, crunch and labor issues with their developers that are legitimate to talk about. And, like, some of the weird DLC practices and, like, day one DLC and that stuff. Like, I get the issues around that and that people didn't like that stuff. But at the same fucking time, EA put out video games. And EA didn't just, like, put out, like, you know, Mass Effect. It's like EA put out... Dead Space, like, like, or like, in Mass, Mass Effect was a new IP, and Dead Space was a new IP, and Mirror's Edge was a new IP, and like a couple of years ago, EA, you know, published a fucking sequel to Mirror's Edge, which was a game that didn't sell that well, but oh, Dice wanted to make a sequel, and so EA was like, sure, you can do that. EA put out that fucking Yarny game a couple of years ago. EA is putting out that Prison Break game this year. They put out new, interesting fucking video games every single year. They contribute to this market in a positive way overall. They're not just leeches like you, like Valve is. Let's put it this way. EA is a business that makes money because they put out games people want to buy. Yeah. And and we don't always want to buy EA games, but people love sports games. We love games EA puts out sometimes. We might think they get a clunker out, like a Mass Effect Andromeda that in in part is a corporate failure to that, that game was in the state it was. Yeah. But at the end of the day, yeah, they are a solvent company because it, basic supply and demand, they make something people want, right? Yeah. That's not what Valve is anymore. Valve yeah. is like we found a way to monopolize this, you know, platform, the PC, and get a stranglehold on it that we're seeing cracks in now, but not enough to t- topple that monopoly. And so Valve makes its money in a very different way than yeah. any of these other companies we could name. You yeah, know, we yeah. can be annoyed at Nintendo for, like, underselling the Super NES Classic. That's a whole different level of problem than what Valve is having, right? Exactly. Because at the end of the day, like, the video game industry, like... The movie industry or the TV industry or the music industry or any, like, entertainment medium, it's a it's an industry driven by creativity at its core. Uh-huh. Which, in, at the moment, when you're watching, like, the 500 superhero movie or playing the 500 first-person shooter, like, it can be easy to lose sight of that and get, like, obsessed with, like, the, like, commercialization and everything about that that happens and get along the way to, for these companies to be profitable. But... This is an industry driven by art and driven by creativity and driven by, you know, the people that make this art. And 
EA, you know, you say what you want about like the making the 500th Madden game, but this year they put out a Madden game with a fucking like four hour long story mode. It's like that's something that sports games almost never do. It's becoming more of a thing now, but like that's awesome and that's interesting and that's pushing, that's helping push the sports game genre forward in a compelling, creative way that is also hopefully like, you know, the people who play Madden are going to be interested by that. Like I'm kind of weirdly interested in that because everybody likes a good sports story. And it's like oh, nothing better. I, I would jump into Madden if I could get like the sports mode for 15 bucks. I might play that in an afternoon. It's just like at the end of the day, EA, whatever problems you have with some of their games or any other big company like Activision or Ubisoft, they are funding interesting, compelling, creative uh, projects that are pushing the culture of video games forward and valve, has not done that in a very long time and is may, way more satisfied in having their two cash cows of Counter-Strike Global Offensive and Dota 2 and just leeching off of those for years and years and years and years and years. And at the end of the day, it feels like, to me, Valve, like the closest other quote-unquote video game company I can equate Valve to is Konami, which Konami doesn't fucking make video games anymore. But you know what? I'm kind of more fine with Konami just straight up going literally into gambling with pachinko machines instead of Valve, like, pretending like they still still make video games when actually all they are in is in gambling. Yes. Like, at least there's a certain level of honesty with the pachinko bullshit yeah, that like Konami Kona- does. Konami didn't pretend to do the right thing with Hideo Kojima. They're no. like, we'll be assholes. Fuck it. Yeah. You but know? we're not going to pretend like we're not going to pretend like video games are an easy industry to make fucking money in. So we're not even going to try anymore and we're just going to go into pachinko machines. It's like okay, fine, like do that. It's a horrible to, to be f- clear. It's a horrible thing to do. Yeah, no, it's like pachinko machines sh- are fucked up and like the culture around it in Japan is fucked up because it's basically like their versions of casinos but you can't actually have real casinos in Japan because they're illegal. So it's like there's a whole conversation to have there. But there's something you can appreciate about a company being completely honest about the fact that they're no longer interested in being in an like art, art-driven industry and just want to be in an industry where they make the largest amount of money as quickly as possible. And that's literally it. Yeah. Well, rest in peace, Valve, whatever you were. Yeah. I'm looking forward to Artifact, the Dota 2 card game. I think it's going to be a real banger. All right, one last piece of news. We've got to go through this quickly because yeah. we've got to get on to the next things. Uh, they announced Yakuza Kiwami 2, Sean. Yes. How are you? Clearly, soon you are going to be able to play every fucking Yakuza game on your PS4 over there. How excited does that make you? I'm super excited. Some of you just got into the Yakuza game earlier this year with Yakuza 0. Yeah, like, like again, I said at the top of the show, I have set my uh, Y-axis to inverted in Yakuza Kiwami because... You were coming over, and I had 30 minutes. I was like, I can't start. I can't play 30 minutes of Yakuza. Like, that'll be half of one of the, the opening cutscene. So it's like, I said the, 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 the Y-axis. is like, I can't play this right now. And I'm sad because I can't play it right now. But yeah, but I'm really happy that they are um, doing this with Yakuza 2, which is the only other PS2-era uh, Yakuza game. So that's, that and Yakuza 1 were the two most inaccessible ones. And they're also um, remaking it in the Yakuza 6 engine. That's what Yakuza Kiwami 2 is going to be. And so that's cool. That's yeah. like... Is Yakuza know. 6 out here yet? I forget. Um, it's coming out later this year. Okay. Yeah. So or I think it, it might be early 2018, actually. So there's a lot of Yakuza games coming uh, our way. There's a lot. It, like, there is definitely because they announced two other things there. Um, just really quick to go through. They announced a Fist of the North Star Yakuza game that, for those who don't know, Fist of the North Star is basically anime Road Warrior with the guy Kinshiro. The, people have probably seen the main character Kinshiro from Fist of the North Star do. He's like, what the, 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 
nothing and hit a dude like a hundred times in one second and he says you're already dead and they explode it's one of the most iconic anime yeah, yeah. exactly so they're making a Fist of the North Star game where the main character Kinshiro is voiced by the guy who uh, voices Kiryu the main character of Yakuza and so that's cool and it was just like that's crazy and, and also, the, the title of the game is really fantastic, because in Japanese, uh, Yakuza, the Yakuza series is called Yuga Gotoku, which means like a dragon, and then Fist of the North Star is Hokuto no Ken, which is Fist of the North Star, and so they've, the name of this Yakuza team-developed uh, Fist of the North Star game is Hokuto no Gotoku, so it's like they just took the two titles together and made... Like a North Star, which I don't know what the fuck that means, but it's a really good... The, the English uh, localization team is going to have a hard time figuring out how to, like, Yaku Fist of the North Zastar or something. I don't know. But, yeah, that, that game looks cool. That's a cool trailer. And then they also announced the new... They're moving um, forward with the Yakuza franchise. That Apparently, Yakuza 6 is the last Kiryu-headed Yakuza game, and they announced their new protagonist... Um, like Sans a game, which is kind of weird. They just sort of like showed the character design and then showed a short teaser for this character, Kazuga Ichiban, who is, I guess, is going to be the new protagonist going forward for the Yakuza series. But he seems cool and different. Nice. And, and that was kind of cool to just see them be like, yeah, like Yakuza games are going to keep on being made and we're like going in a new direction with it going forward, which is it's ex- exciting news. It's awesome. It's the one downside for me of Nintendo having such a banner year is that it's pushed out the time I would probably carved out to make to play Yakuza Zero yeah. and stuff, which I will one day get to because I'm sure at one point there will be a PS4 pack where I can just buy a bunch yeah, of Yakuza games. All the Yakuza games. But uh, I would love to play these. It's just there's a lot of stuff coming out. Yeah. But man, I'm uh, I'm, I'm happy for you, Sean, because I know you love these games. Yeah. It's really exciting. It's it's. Never been a better time to be a Yakuza fan, which I say having been someone who's a Yakuza fan as of six months ago. Uh, Just a fan of Yakuza in general, because not like the people, but like the stories about them. Uh, Takeshi Kitano's got a new Yakuza movie coming out this October, on my fucking birthday, I think. Uh, Outrage Coda, the third Outrage movie. Yes, you haven't seen the first two of those. Those are good movies. Those are really good. Uh, Takeshi Kitano also in Yakuza Six. Yes, so, so that needs reminding every now and then for extra motivation to get to that point. And it's the it is the one thing about them remaking all these Yakuza games that is a real dilemma of like when the fuck do I actually play Yakuza Six? Right. Yeah. Luckily, it's an obscure enough franchise that I don't feel like worried about getting spoiled on it randomly out of nowhere the way that like you would on Game of Thrones or something. Right. So it's like I'm fine with holding off on it for now. But well, if you need to borrow my PS3 to catch up on. The other ones it's yeah. sitting in my closet at the moment there so yeah um anywho let's go ahead and move on uh before we get on to our two main topics for today quick patreon shout outs if you donate at our 15 dollar level with it which is the godzilla level of support yes. very good on level. our patreon very good level um you get access to two extra things on top of everything else one is a weekly q a that i put up a couple days before the episode where you can just ask questions and we'll make sure to address them didn't get any this week so we're not addressing that but once a month we'll also do a quick shout out to our patrons just to like like a little credits thing of like who's helping us support the show so i want to give a shout out we have two this month at the godzilla level of support and i want to give a quick shout out to these people because these are two also of our oldest listen not yeah. oldest in age but like oldest in support for the longest show. listeners longest to term listeners uh the first here i'll go in order of who signed up first is barry donnelly uh, so Barry Donnelly, thank you for supporting yes. the Weekly Stuff podcast. Um, Barry also, you know, reaches out to the show on Twitter, and I enjoy hearing his thoughts there, and then some of the comments and stuff. Always enjoyed having Barry on board and, and talking to him about his thoughts. So Absolutely. it's good to get to know your listeners. So Barry, thank you for your support. And our other listener who's done this is Kenneth Serenyi. I hope I'm saying your name right, Kenneth. I, I think I got your first name right. 
Kenneth. I probably. I hope so. It's Kenneth. Kenneth, yeah. Uh, He's a dark elf, actually. Kenneth is definitely one of our longest-term listeners because you might remember when we got our first good microphone for the show, that was from a donation Kenneth made. So that was like our Kenneth... I joked at the time, the Kenneth Memorial microphone, and then Sean pointed out, is he dead? And I'm like, no, so I worded that poorly. Anyway, so... Or maybe he is, and his his spirit is supporting us from beyond the grave. Well, that'd be weird. Either way, Kenneth, thank you for your years of support and for being an early Patreon. That's awesome. I hope you guys are both enjoying the $15 tier, and I hope we get more people joined up. But Kenneth and Barry, two of our favorite listeners, not just because they give us money, but because they've been engaged for a long time. That's one of our favorite things here to see. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so that's our shout-outs for August. Thank you guys again. And just to remind you all, patreon.com slash weeklystuffpodcast. we got a $5, $10, and $15 tier, and we have a bonus monthly episode on Doctor Who. Next month's is on Tomb of the Cybermen. That's going to be fun. Um, We've got... Two Let's Play videos every week, and you get those early and in batches, so you can kind of watch them all at once if you want. And then, like, you know, there's a whole community thing on there. Right now, we have posts and things, and you can talk to us directly. So I think the Patreon is pretty cool. And thanks again to Barry and Kenny, uh, Kenneth, for, um, I think sometimes it goes by Kenny, for uh, supporting us at that level in our first month of the Patreon. Yeah. All right. Uh, for now, let's go ahead and move on to our first big topic of the day, which is Uncharted The Lost Legacy. So, Sean, yeah, how good is Uncharted The Lost Legacy? It's so much fun, dude. It's, it really, it's just a blast. It's, it's a great game. You know, I, I have a few little quibbles with like some of the story and character motivations, just that some of it feels slightly rote to me as an Uncharted sure. fan, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I think just to play, this might be the most purely entertaining Uncharted game. Yeah, is that I think fair so. to say? Yeah. Like, because Uncharted 4 is terrific, and I even said at the time, and I'll probably stand by it, that I think that's the best Naughty Dog-developed game overall in terms of story and character and graphics and everything. But there's just something about, like, Uncharted The Lost Legacy being about an eight-hour game and just so focused and pared down, like, what's the, the purest things about Uncharted, but then also going in new directions with some gameplay things. And just every beat of it is fun. It never slows down. It's so well-paced. Having Chloe as your main character is so ludicrously fun. It really does feel like Naughty Dog kicking back and just being like, let's have a party for our last Uncharted game and yeah. do a bunch of stuff we've always wanted to do. And it is such a treat. It, like That's the word I keep coming back to. It's like, it's, it's like coming home and finding a box of cookies on your couch and being like, this is awesome. And that's what Uncharted The Lost Legacy is. And as someone who loves these games to death, what a wonder... If this is the last one Naughty Dog's ever going to do... And I would tell them they may, might want to reconsider that because Chloe's a really good protagonist. Yeah. But if it is, what a way to go out. Absolutely. It's something that, like, there's something really nice about the fact that it doesn't have to be this, like, huge boundary-pushing game, which is the way, like, the Uncharted games have been typically in one way or the other, like, either in terms of, you know, genre conventions or graphics or storytelling or whatever. Each Uncharted game has been, like, this boundary-pushing, like, really huge AAA release. Which is actually one of like the reasons why there's a significant uh, backlash to, and there definitely was at the time, I think it's less than now, to Uncharted 3 was because it was much less of that at the time than Uncharted 2 was. Or even Uncharted 1, which has its sort of like weird issues of you find them clearly finding their footing with the, the sort of style of game, but still like really push things forward like performance capture and stuff like that in the animation and graphics and like wet just the, gene, just the wet gene tech was super yeah. impressive at the time. Just, it, it was really a thing. And 
and Uncharted 2, obviously, like, a huge, crazy success, massive game, incredible uh, just innovation in a lot of different ways. And Uncharted 3 was a slightly smaller step up, which I think, like, both of us think that Uncharted 3 is better than Uncharted 2, but it doesn't necessarily have that reputation everywhere else. I think largely because it wasn't, if you're playing, following those games at the time, it wasn't this, like, huge step up from Uncharted 2 the way Uncharted 2 was from 1. And there's something really nice about the Lost Legacy just being like, you know what? We don't have to be a part of that. Like, because we're a $40 expansion thing. We're like, a, it's basically the Uncharted version of the Halo 3 ODST. And, and I think it's a great comparison also yeah. qualitatively. You know? Exactly. That it just doesn't have to be this, like, a whole new engine, all new shooting mechanics. Like, every gun has to be a new gun. Like, like the story has to, like, like, be, like, even a step above everything else that happened before and has to, like, push things and either make it darker or like like make the action set pieces even bigger and it's like it doesn't have, like the scale doesn't have to get bigger and bigger and bigger every time it just is through like the kind of trick of the marketing and the price and the different protagonists it just gets to sidestep all those issues that i think plagues not just uncharted but any sort of big action franchise and just gets to allow it to be fun and just be a nice surprise and like you said it is like coming home and finding out that like your roommate or whoever just like bought some extra cookies is like, hey, you can just have these. You're like, fucking yeah, and not just cook- not just cookies, but for me at least, like my favorite cookies. Because exactly, yeah. Uncharted is easily one of my favorite game franchises. The, I mean, this is a series that, like, if you know some of my interests, yeah, it's like they made it for me sometimes, and I just love. And this one maybe more than ever because I love the India setting so yeah. fucking much. And yeah, it's just, it's like, I after Uncharted 4, which is such a great game and such a beautiful ending to Nate, uh, Nathan Drake's story, you're just like, okay, it's over. And then, you know, they announced The Lost Legacy, but we weren't quite sure what it was. And then by the time it rolls around, you know, this never, they, I think Sony wisely did not hype this thing up the ass or anything. Yeah. So by the time it came out, it was, I, you know, I had not seen much of the game, and I was just sitting down and like an hour in being like, this is amazing. This is, I didn't think I was going to get to play this, and here it is, and it's so fucking good. Yeah. Because it is, it's that kind of thing that it almost, for me, makes Uncharted 4 even better um, in retrospect, or retroactively more. Because, like, if people remember, I, I like, actually wrote a text review of Uncharted 4. And, and one of my, like, only real complaints about it was that, like, weirdly enough, Uncharted 4 doesn't have that much combat. Which is such a strange complaint that criticism to have for a game, because usually it is so far in the other direction. But you just, I felt like when I played Uncharted 4... I didn't have, like, if I got to the end of that game and felt like I had only kind of scratched the surface of the different kind of combat mechanics and enemies and weapons and, and stuff that were available, because it was also the best combat they had designed for an Uncharted game, certainly. Oh, like, far. maybe even better than the combat in The Last of Us, which are kind of apples and oranges. But it's, like, really well-developed, really fun, interesting, compelling, like, different kind of third-person shooting combat, and you just didn't get to do that much of it in Uncharted 4, which was fine generally for the pace and style of that story because it was like a heavier story, much more character-based story, and they did the, the quiet moments so well in that to let the game breathe. It overall worked for Uncharted 4, but I did come away feeling like, I just want, like, I like finished Uncharted 4 and went back to the encounter select thing that they have, which is very nice that it's like you just get to go pick any of the fights in the game and just go replay them. You also get to see the exact number of fights there are in the game be like, there's really not, like, you don't do this that much. And Uncharted The Lost Legacy is much more the kind of pace that Uncharted 1, 2, and 3 had. Which is like, I think Uncharted 4 did not need to have that kind of pace. It, the pace that Uncharted 4 had is, is great for its story. But I also, I like having being able to kind of have my cake and eat it too. Of being able to have that very, like, 
darker character base like like big like breathing kind of story and then have this just like roller coaster ride like let's go for it just like action 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 like let's just keep on ramping it up like cool new action set pieces new kind of encounter designs and keep like the combat moving and really make it feel like by the time i'm in the last fights of uncharted lost legacy like i have you know mastered this combat system in some way and are using all the tools available to me in fun creative interesting combat encounters well i'm talking about the combat you know fundamentally it's unchanged from uncharted 4 but they do like they they get to have a little more fun with it here because it's not as grounded a story chloe is a different kind of protagonist she doesn't have you know we've always like the term ludonarrative dissonance was invented to talk about uncharted 2 and that well it was technically invented to to talk about bioshock but then it was oh i didn't appropriated to be more like the uncharted one and two thing. Okay, I had my timeline wrong on that. Yes. Anyway, around that time, we can yes. say, right? Clint Hawking and, was the, the guy oh, okay, okay. dev. Anywho, but um, around that time. Yeah. And part of it is because Nathan Drake does not seem like the kind of guy who would kill that many people. Chloe, probably not either, but I can believe her killing that many people easier because I don't think she has the same kind of scruples, right. and it's what makes her wonderful, right? Like, yeah, she's not trying to pretend that she's above this no. stuff, like the way that Nathan Drake does. Yeah, no, Chloe is never going to have her Uncharted 4 moment where it's like, I need to get out of this life, right? right? Yeah. I should say Uncharted 2, 3, 4 moment, because yeah. it's a persistent theme for Mr. Nathan Drake. But no, so so you, they get to just have bigger encounters, and like the last one in this game, before the big train set piece at the end, I guess spoilers from here on out is so crazy the number of enemies the size of like the yeah. combat arena and it's so much fun and yet at the same time i agree it is paced more like uncharted 1 2 and 3 i think it's better paced though because i still think uh, uncharted 2 in particular weirdly because i know that's like a lot of people's favorite one for me that one has way too much combat in the last half and i think this uh, the lost legacy is still better about it's not just an endless stream of combat. They're right. always breaking it up. And I think it being an eight-hour package with a lot of different you know, climbing mechanics and puzzles and all these things, and then a healthy dose of combat, it never feels like you're doing one thing for too long. So I would say it's even a notch above uh, the earlier games in that regard as well. But you're right. It is totally... You come out of Uncharted 4 and you're like, what an amazing game, but I, I want to have my cake and eat it too. Well, here's The Lost Legacy yeah. where you get more of all the things that made Uncharted 4 great... But also focused where you get to just have more fun with it. Because Naughty Dog, as you say, doesn't have those same expectations and needs driving it. It's just, what can we make that is fun? And they have made something very, very fun. Yeah, like, I just keep on replaying in my head the moment where, like, the Uncharted Combat clicked for me again. Because the Uncharted Combat was, like, something... You can go back for, like, the full details on this for the Uncharted 4 um, review episode. But, it, like, the quick recap of, like, when I first played through Uncharted 1, 2, and 3 on the PS3, like, I enjoyed those games, but the combat didn't quite work for me. And then when I went back to them on the Nathan Drake collection, then for Uncharted 4, I changed, I fundamentally and, like, psychologically and philosophically approach, like changed my approach to the combat that it was not... Because Uncharted is not Gears of War, and the combat is not about hiding behind a cinder block and popping up and shooting someone in the head and ducking down and popping up. It's like... You can do that, and that is how I played the games the first time through, but it's really boring. How you want to play the game is the way that, like, the action set pieces are set up and, like, play in character as Nate or or uh, now as Chloe of, like, you're just moving constantly and jumping around and swinging and just popping dudes and blind firing crazily, just, like, grabbing a shotgun and just, like, firing it into the air, like, hoping to hit, like, the sniper over there and just... 
play it the way that like an action hero acts in an action movie, you know, like play it that way. And they are so much fun. And I just keep on replaying this moment in my head. And I have been for a while of the first night I played the lost legacy, um, where I got to the point in the sort of like the open world thing that we'll talk about. Um, and there was just a combat encounter in there where the com- where the combat clicked for me again, where I had a, uh, I, it was so good. Cause the other thing I always do is I, always kind of like intentionally force myself to pick up weapons that don't have a lot of ammo that are like the the impractical weapons because that forces you to improvise in the middle of a combat situation which is fun so i had like a fucking pistol that had two bullets in it and an rpg with one rocket and that that was my entire arsenal was that and i went into this combat encounter where i was like stealth and in the uh, grass at first and just kind of could see this combat encounter in front of me and there i could see there's some guys like they're kind of like split on these sort of like you know uh different big rocks that had big crags between them that you'd have to jump between and there were different swing points there as well i saw like off to the left there's one that i could swing from this rope and and land over there and fight like there are these two guys they're kind of like standing close to one and they're kind of close to one another and there was another guy like a little bit above them and so there's three over there and then to the right i could see there was a couple of other guys and then further back it's like oh there's some snipers and guys way over there that i can't really deal with yet and I looked at this and I was like, oh, I can kind of see, like, oh, if I jumped over here, I could, like, pull this guy off the edge to the right and kind of stealth my way around. And I was like, I do have a rocket launcher. And there is this swing point right here. <laughs> and those two guys that were kind of close to each other, well, they just walked up next to each other and are talking. And they're standing right in front of each other off on the left. And I was like... I know exactly how to start this combat scenario. So I immediately, and I have no idea what Nadine, the co-op partner, was thinking when Chloe just does this. Because this doesn't, does not seem like Nadine's style for how to approach this kind of scenario. But I just jump out of the grass, throw my rope, like latch onto the grapple point, swing, shoot the rocket launcher in midair, in mid-swing, blow those two guys up, jump at the apex of my swing... Blind fire my two pistol bullets into the other dude, just kind of like grazing him, land, punch him in the face, and take his assault rifle. I was like, that was like three seconds. It's like, that's one of the fucking coolest things I've done in any video game like this year was just this like three seconds of shooting those guys with rocket launcher mid swing, jumping off, firing wildly in the air, landing, punching this dude in the head, and in like the same animation, grabbing his assault rifle and then being able to sort of like tackle the rest of the combat scenario from there. That involved a lot of frantic grenade throwing and swinging from trees and and just random bullshit. That was in no way an effective way to approach a combat encounter, but an incredibly entertaining way. Well, because the great thing is they're so open that you can approach them in so many different ways and they're so fun to replay for that reason. I have a very similar story though from this chapter four, the Western Gaths. Yeah. We're talking about, and there was this is where it clicked for me. Same kind of thing where I was in this area in the Western Ghats where it's like a very inland area. There's no water. It's like maybe near a waterfall, but there's like these three little towers and kind of a big grassy area, and you can get a sniper rifle there. And I had that, and I got up on one of the towers and was sniping a few guys because there's a lot of them, and I died a couple times. Because the nice thing about Uncharted Two is that they make it always hard enough. That you have to be very proactive, you know? Yeah. And anyway, so then I like, everything went to hell and I'm like swinging around because you can swing between these three little towers. And eventually I run out of, I have no pistol ammo, I have no grenades, and I've got one shot left in my sniper rifle. And someone's shooting at me, I, it, you're, it's chaos, I don't quite know what's going on, and I'm swinging, and then I'm like, oh, I have nowhere else to swing to. And so it's roll into the grass, someone's shooting me, I got up, turned around, all I had was my sniper rifle, and I didn't have time to zoom in, and just no scope, fire, don't even look, and the guy like, oh, and goes down, and then Nadine is like, looks like we got him. And I had to just like pause the game and go like, 
oh, that was so cool. Because it totally feels like that would be the beat in an action movie where, like, yeah. Chloe is, is like, oh, shit, I have nowhere else to swing. Land, someone's behind me, turn, fire. Oh, God, I got him. Yeah. It's so great. And it just it makes for these wonderful action movie moments. And it, it frustrates me when people are like, oh, Naughty Dog games are so scripted. And it's like, sometimes, but then you get moments like that. That ain't scripted. Yeah. And more of the game is like that than the other stuff. Yeah, like, I think it's just one of those things where I, I wish that, like, Naughty Dog found a way to teach the player better how to, like, have fun with the combat. Yeah. Because, like, the third-person cover shooters that, like, I think are more popular and sort of, like, the standard for that kind of combat are antithetical to how you, like, how is the, the right, in my mind, or, like, the fun way to play Uncharted, which is, again... I don't think I've fucking ever blind-fired in Gears of War ever, other than with a shotgun occasionally in multiplayer when someone's very close up. But you never blind-fire. It's like, in Uncharted, if I'm not firing at every single second of the combat encounter, I'm not having fun yet. Like, right. there is no greater joy than just wildly firing an assault rifle in, like, vaguely towards the direction of some enemies as you are, like, swinging off of a rope. It's like, there's no hope of me actually, like, really hitting anybody with this. But holy shit, when you ever occasionally, when it does work, it's the best feeling in the world. And there's just this <laughs> frantic, like, scrambling nature to it that if you are not, like, being really, like, sort of conservative with your ammo, and you're not staying in cover all the time. Instead, you commit yourself to being very active and moving, and you only ever take cover when, like, you really need to get some health back and kind of reassess what is the coolest thing I can do now. Like, that's what the cover is for. The cover is for to take a breath and be like, oh, wait, there's, like, two grapple points over here. I can do some cool shit with that. Or it's like, oh, there's a rocket launcher that fell over there. I can do some cool shit with that. That's what the cover is for. The cover is not there for you to sit there and get and rack up headshots. Yeah. And I'll say this, it's always clicked for me in Uncharted. There's just something about these games that just has always, even when I think like, okay, they're leaning on this too much, which I think they do in 1 and 2 particularly, it's always just clicked for me. And it's only ever gotten better. Every game. Yeah. And in The Lost Legacy, again, the underlying fundamentals haven't changed, but I think the actual like combat encounter design is at its best for the whole series. Yeah. And the fact that you're, you're engaging with the combat with the frequency you are in The Lost Legacy means I feel like you're more engaged with it because... In Uncharted 4, it would, you, you could go like three hours in that game at like one or two points without engaging with the combat at all. And so when you get back into it, you're like, right, this is how you play this game. Whereas like The Lost Legacy, I never lost that flow halfway through the way yeah. I did with Uncharted 4. No, absolutely. And let's talk about some of the other special things this game yeah. does. Because there's just so many things to talk about. But let's start with the Western Gats chapter. Because yeah. it's amazing. I mean... The chapter it's, that's so huge that when I got to chapter 5, I forgot that this game was... And that all the Uncharted games are split into chapters. It is. It's hilarious because this game is only 9 chapters. 1, 2, and 3 are really fast. 4 is like half the game. Yeah. 5 is like 2 hours. And then 6, 7, 8, 9 are really fast. So this one... And Uncharted has always done that where the chapter breaks are very random seemingly. But it's hilarious in this one because the game doesn't really get going until you get to chapter 4. Yeah. And then it's Chloe and Dean have gone to India and they need to figure out where to go and you just are dropped into this area and it takes you a minute to realize like oh this is what they're doing because there's a brief part in Uncharted 4 where you have kind of an open thing in Australia, no, Madagascar, Madagascar. Yeah. and it's cool but it's like it's not the most fleshed out part of the game but then this is the Western Ghats you just have this giant open area and you have four main objectives, and you can also do some collectibles. I did everything you could do here. Yeah, me too. Play, yeah. yeah. And uh, so you can... It's actually very rem much reminded me of, like, a mini version of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which is sure. that, like, 
There's going to be a final thing eventually, but until then, you have a map that Chloe has, and you pull it out and you figure out where you go. You have a Jeep, and you and Nadine are going to go on an adventure here. And I loved it. It's like, I kind of want Naughty Dog to do a full game like this someday, because they're really good at it. And like building on those Jeep mechanics from Uncharted 4, which were fun, but again, not maybe fully explored in this one. I just, I had the best time going around the Western Ghats and finding all of the little collectible coins you have to get to, I know they're not coins, but like the little relics. To, so you can get that um, jewel at the end, the Queen's Ruby, which makes for the best trophy pop ever, which is yeah. Yas Queen. Yeah. So you get that. And then you have to go to the four towers and attack those. Um, and it's just, it's a time, it's not only, the, like the game, like, stretches its legs out in so many ways there. In terms of gameplay, puzzles, combat encounters, traversal, but also just the little conversations you and Nadine have. And all the little pieces of Indian lore you get, which I love so much. I, I learned so much about Hinduism right. in this game, and it's yeah. great. Uh, I think it's one of the best things Naughty Dog has ever done, is just this particular chapter. Yeah, like, I wonder how much of that is what... Like, the original plan for that Madagascar section from Uncharted 4 was. Like, it kind of, like, feels like, oh, this is why they built these mechanics. Because also, that Madagascar section has, like, a kind of similar setup of you have to go to, like, a number of different objectives. But in Uncharted 4, they're basically linear. And there are a couple of weird side things you can jump off the Jeep and go, like, find this, like, little, you know, treasure. But it's not the sort of more formalized, um, like, anti-coin thing they have going on in, in The Lost Legacy. And so it does feel like it's them stretching their legs, like allowing themselves um, with this smaller piece of content that they, to be like, oh, let's be a bit more experimental because, you know, Naughty Dog has not done an open world kind of thing since Jack 2 and Jack 3 back on the PS2. So it's been a long time since this developer has tried something that's not that sort of more linear focused action game thing that the Uncharted series and in a lot of ways The Last of Us is. And it does also make me curious... If The Last of Us Part Two is going to have some of this stuff as well, that like, yeah. especially with how successful it is here, like I hope they're experimenting it with with that there because The Last of Us also feels like that's a game that would there's a lot of opportunity for you to do something with those mechanics um, and this kind of setup, but it does serve such a useful and interesting function for the Lost Legacy of you having this opportunity near the beginning of the game after these sort of like accelerated opening where you're introduced to the villain and the, the main characters and sort of the plot setup and a couple of like quicker action sequences that don't have a lot of combat in them it's more just sort of the escape stuff you do um here you're just it allows you to be like okay we're going to introduce all the fundamentals of this game to you like the puzzle mechanics the the, the combat and everything and the driving and just let you sort of take your time with it and breathe in this world and just go and tackle whatever objective, just go wherever you want. It's not a super huge open world, so it's, you know, you can traverse the thing pretty quickly if you need to. And it's just a very approachable way to sort of like sink your feet into the game that also I think allows this really useful space to establish the relationship between Chloe and Nadine because it allows them to sort of adopt this sort of like early sort of casual friendship thing they have where at the beginning of the game they're a bit more frigid and over the course of this they open up more and more especially if you because I feel like you have to do the token thing because this then you, the get the, part. you get the monkey scene and the monkey scene is critical to the story of the game I, I love that there's a long collectible sequence and the reward I mean there's there's a literal reward that yeah. helps you find treasures but the like narrative reward is you get to go hang out with monkeys yeah that's awesome every video game that should be the, the result of every single collectible in any video game ever I would have been much more satisfied in Assassin's Creed 2 getting feathers if I got to hang out with a monkey at the end instead of getting a dumb cape 
You know, like, that's where I would have picked up all the tokens in Far Cry 3 or whatever, or all the antiques, if at the end it was like, here's this dope capuchin monkey, man. Just hang out with this guy. He's really fun and cool and a wacky dude. And that's, that's what I'm into video games for. Just not a lot of video games give it to me, unfortunately. But The, the Last Legacy definitely did. And so, like, yeah, you get to have that fun relationship and that casual relationship in this, like, really... Like, and from a game design sense, it's this really relaxed sort of mood. And then also in the story, it's a much more relaxed mood. And the pacing is much more slow. And that then, I think, segues into um, the sort of back half of the game, which is the much more sort of traditional Uncharted-focused thing that then allows them to sort of, like, complicate the relationship between Chloe and Nadine, which is really the core of the story, and make that feel more sort of real and satisfying than I think it would have otherwise been if it was a much more traditional structure. Because I think it would have been hard to establish the relationship between these two characters in a believable way in that other, like, kind of older Uncharted structure. Where they, you know, Uncharted got to kind of cheat because it sort of half does the work on Uncharted 1 and then really capitalizes on it on 2 and 3 where Uncharted 1 is like the story's fine and the relationships are fine but they're a bit more sketched out. And Uncharted The Lost Legacy, I think, does a much better job within one game taking these two characters and establishing their relationship and building their relationship within the story. Well, I'll even say, talking about The Last of Us, if I have one complaint with The Last of Us, the first half of that game is very slow. And I think most of that's fine, but I've, you know, on subsequent playthroughs, I've realized, like, oh, right, most of what I remember from The Last of Us is not in the first, like, eight hours of this game. Sure. And a lot of that is the character setup. And it's like, you know, but that's still in the in the Naughty Dog, like, linear model. And it's like, okay, here in The Lost Legacy, it's a very different kind of relationship. It's a whole, whole different tonal ballpark we're yeah. in. But I do see them, like, here's a new way to do this character establishment and gameplay establishment. And some of that is that, you know, the, all the Uncharted fundamentals are there. They don't have to tutorialize anything. But it's still, it's a, I think it feels like a little step forward for them yeah. in figuring out. And they're already so far ahead of the competition on just basic character writing to see them continue to evolve is so thrilling. Yeah, it really, what The Lost Legacy does in that section is it capitalizes on what a video game can very casually and easily do, which is build up a relationship between the player and another character just by you spending time with them in different Uh ways. And you just get to do that without it being heavily narrativized to you all the time. And it it allows that section, even though like that chapter four of Uncharted The Lost Legacy is not like huge. It's not this massive, massive thing. Like the whole game is seven to eight hours long and that's only like, you know, in the first half of it. It can't be that big. But it feels big because of the way the pacing of the story works and because of the mechanic of the open world allows you to sort of take those objectives in any direction you want. And there's a lot of dead space between them that allows you to, even when there's not really much happening and there's like a conversation here and there, but every time you get out of the Jeep, Nadine's like, Chloe's like, hey, I'm going to go check this out. And Nadine's like, okay, cool. I'll wait here. Like just those little interactions and that sense of that character being there is enough for the player to fill in the blanks about the relationship and the development of the relationship on their own. And just the basic gameplay here is so good because it's like all the stuff you do in a normal linear Uncharted thing of having some puzzle solving and some platforming and some climbing and some combat and here's some driving and some cutscenes. But now it's not in any particular order. It's kind of in the order you find it in and it's so much fun. Like I just, when I realized like, okay, I have this long to-do list, I was so excited. And I think I played chapter four. It took me like two sittings because it is that long. And I just, I remember at one point I had to like take a break to go do something else. And I just, the whole time I was thinking about what am I going to do next when I go back to the Western Ghats. And it's so good, I thought to myself, man, how is the rest of the game going to top this? And the answer is chapter five, the great battle. 
has the best climbing sequence in any Uncharted game, and that is when you climb up, climb up Ganesh himself. Yeah. Right? Yes, yeah. Like, it's that's, so that's, good. That's what you need in Uncharted is like, especially at this point where like I enjoy the sort of the, what the, the climbing does for the pacing, but at some point you do so much of the climbing in Uncharted 4 in particular is like, you need to do something with it, and it's like, you know, climbing on a giant statue of a Hindu god that's fun. That's cool. It's so... Everything in the second half of this game with... Uh, I love that they have made five Uncharted games and the plot to all five is going and finding a lost city. Yes. They have never deviated from that and no one really talks about it because they do it so well every time. Yeah. It's not just going and finding a lost city. It's also like every single antagonist is the exact same two of yes. like... It's the... Which is also... It's an Indiana Jones kind of thing. It's all they did. But it's the whole thing of like... The antagonist is also looking for the lost city, but it's like, but, you know, your crew is way better at this shit than the villain is, so at some point, the like, you are going to be captured by the villain, and the villain's going to have to try to use you to, to, like, solve this riddle or whatever, and within that space, you're going to have to find some way to escape. They do that in all of these fucking games. And it would feel stale if it wasn't so damn good yeah. at it. You exactly. Know? Yes. It's, they just it's it just turns out if you pull off a story beat with enough flair and confidence, it doesn't matter if it's the same story beat. It feel it will feel fresh every time. And it's like I think what it is here is that they just cut loose with the pure like sheer graphical power of the PlayStation Absolutely, and and their yeah. art design and just like they go for broke in imagining these giant Hindu statues that are like, and you really feel the sense of scale as you're climbing these things. And then when you get, there's actually two lost cities in this game, which I love. It's true, yeah. And uh, the I mean, the first lost city is a fake lost city. I, I know go to the real lost city. Yep. But both of them are just like so enormous and so ridiculous, but like the kind of thing you could only pull off in a video game. And they constantly have so much fun with it. And I always love... I am a sucker for the climbing sequences. They are like crack to me. But in this game in particular, when you are doing it on fucking Ganesh, and they've added in all the rope mechanics, and you have Chloe and Nadine swapping stories about Hindu and Indian like mythology and things like that, oh, it is such a ridiculous amount of fun. And I think yeah. Chapter 5 is also where you ride the elephant. Uh, I think that might be 6. That might be 6. Yeah. Either way... The elephant stuff is also so great. Like elephant they, stuff's great. Oh, they, they throw in so much fun, cool, awesome, unexpected stuff in this last half. And again, it's like, it's really made me rethink the thing of like, Naughty Dog should get out ahead. I'm like, but they're so good at it. And yeah. we'll have to talk about that later. But like, just the whole second half of this game was like me thinking, this should not feel as fresh as it feels. You know? Yeah, it's just, I mean, I think part of what helps make it work is that Uncharted 4 was so different. So it has been... Like a while since since Uncharted three, and it's been you know these games and their like methodology for making them has evolved so much that them taking everything they learned from Last of Us Uncharted four and going back and being like let's just make that kind of Uncharted game with everything we've learned and the, like the new technologies we have is really exciting because the combat's great and the like the rope stuff is awesome and it helps the make stuff. the climbing um, a lot more dynamic in a lot of ways and it's just I the one thing I love about the rope stuff is that. You have the option of like standing on the edge of the thing and throwing the rope and then jumping off. I never do it. Nobody, who would ever do that? But I love that you can, so that it's an active choice to be like, no, I'm going to jump and then throw the rope. There's no sane human being on the fucking planet that would ever do that. That's fucking crazy. 
But this is a video game, so I'm going to do that. Yeah. And when I talk about the whole Ganesh climbing sequence, it's like a hour of the game that's like multiple climbing sequences. Yeah. But one of those is you're outside on the big tusks and stuff. And I remember there's one where like you just have to swing a ridiculous distance. And Nadine's comment is like, you know, something like, well, I didn't think I'd be doing that today. And it's like... You would have had a heart attack and died. Any yeah. human. doesn't matter how brave you are. That's an, in, No one has ever done anything like this. And I love it. I love when Naughty Dog just pushes it ridiculous enough. Yeah. And again, like, Chloe definitely being so almost like a self-aware video game character really helps sell all that. Absolutely. Um, talking about just a little bit more on the game. Let's get, we'll get to the story and character stuff in a moment. But other things from this game I want to talk about. The puzzles in this one yeah. are so good. Yeah. And I thought they were particularly good in Uncharted 4 as well. But here, like, there are some that I loved so much because they were just hard enough and always just creative enough. I think the standout one is where you have these statues in yeah. the middle of the room on these panels that you have to move around. And they make two separate series of shadows on the wall. Oh, I loved that one. Yeah. And, and there was a point in the middle of it where I was having... It's, it's a hard one. It takes mm-hmm. a while to figure yeah. out. And I was even considering getting, like, a pen and paper out. I didn't wind up doing that. But in the middle, like, my dog started barking and I had to go attend to them. And, you know, about a half hour later I got to come back to that and start trying again. And I was just, like, again, the whole time running through in my head, like, oh, what's my next move? And things like that. Yeah, one thing I just love tracking, like, through the Uncharted games is each one, I feel like Naughty Dog gets more and more, like, let's put, like, an actual puzzle in this one. Because, like, it started with, like, Uncharted 1 has, like, puzzles but like they're not really puzzles and uncharted 2 is kind of like that as well that's like it's a puzzle but the puzzle is like let's take like the four like chinese mythical beasts of like the the zodiac or whatever like suzaku and Byaku and all that stuff and and look at drake's notebook and match like red with red and blue with blue it's like that's, yeah it's a puzzle in that technical sense but you're just it's like a puzzle if you gave me the fucking answer sheet and then like since then now we're at the lost legacy and you're at that like the the shadow statue uh, puzzle, which is like is supposed to be a hard one, and you're like, this is a puzzle that like a Legend of Zelda game wouldn't do because it would be too hard. Like this is like it's it's the kind of puzzle a Zelda game would do, but they wouldn't go this far with it. And I like that they're confident enough to be like, let's just do a hard fucking like let's just make it a hard puzzle. Like fuck it, like let's yep. just. You know, let's make people spend a little bit of time on this and actually have to think it out because it is like at first it seems very simple and then you're like, oh wait, shit, right? Because I have to get both of the paintings lined up at the same time, so I have to kind of like push these blocks against each other and like keep them paired up. And it, it does it like it is. You have to like kind of approach the understanding of the puzzle and layers until you kind of get there. And it's like it's a really solid puzzle, and it's fun to just be like. I actually solved the puzzle. I didn't have the game just solve a puzzle for me and I have to follow the steps. I actually have to think about it. I like that they finally are confident enough to really do that. Oh, I love it. There's also like all the rotational ones you yeah. do in this one that get harder as they go along. I just every every time a puzzle came up, I just got giddy. Like oh, I'm, it's going to be so challenging, yeah. but I love it. It's like it's probably what like Chloe and Nate and Nathan feel when they play. You know, or the characters are actually yeah. in these scenarios where they have a perverse like love for this stuff. Yeah, it's like, I don't know how the fuck these ancient, like, Hindu people, like, rigged up this thing so that, like, when I try to turn this one dial, this dial turns, like, in this proportion, and this one turns in this proportion, or they made these giant fucking statues that... When you stand on different plates, they like move in, like, specific frames. That's the most ridiculous one I love. It's like, and I love that because they have this great 
sort of running gag about everything coming in threes, and I love that, like, for Chloe, I almost kind of what you think of her being this, like, pseudo sort of self-aware character. See, she says it initially as it being, like, a game design joke, mostly, and then Nadine brings it up later as, like, this actual, like, kind of spiritual concept in Hinduism. Like, you're right, it always does come in threes. Like, Shiva's third eye and all this stuff. You're like, no, I think it's because, like, the it's good to sort of iterate on the puzzle design three times, but by the time you get to the third one of the statue thing, there's, like, three different kinds of statues that all move in different ways that reacted to the different pl- the pressure plates in different ways. You're like, like, the fuck ancient, like, Indian people. Like, we couldn't build this now. This is too complicated. Like, this, like you'd have to spend a billion dollars in, like, this brain trust of fucking, like, NASA engineers to fucking rig this shit up. And, and at a certain point, it's also, like, you, the bigger question isn't how did you do it, it's why did you do it. Yeah, because you also, like, if someone brought a ladder, that puzzle's over. You just walk to the other end of the room and fucking set the ladder up and climb up. You don't need I, to jump on the other platforms. Just bring a fucking ladder. And I love how much Naughty Dog has made these elements their own. Because it's basically all a riff on like the first ten minutes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. And that's just a couple of arrows and a rolling boulder. Yeah. And it's like here, it's, as you say, there's just a bunch of statues that will swing a giant axe and cut you in half. Or something. It's, it's nuts. And I love how much Naughty Dog has owned it at this point. Yeah. So good. Uh, I also want to say from a gameplay standpoint, I think the final chapter is the best ending to any Uncharted game. Not yeah. necessarily in terms of like story and impact. That would be probably yeah. three or four. But like in terms of just playing the ending, everything oh, yeah. they do at the end here with the train stuff is a little reminiscent of that stuff in the middle of Uncharted 2, but it's different enough and they also have like you get off the train and you're on the car and then you get back on the train and there's so much ridiculous shit going on. I think all of that is so stupendous and keeps the pace up right to the end. I think Uncharted games can kind of sometimes sag at the end where like they feel like we need to do a big final boss or we need to have a big escape sequence, but this is yeah. just like focusing on the fundamentals and there is you do have a final like fist fight but it's not like completely out of left field yeah because they also have managed to like they made sure to set up the fist fight yes well two in other, advance two other times, times you, know, right. you know everything comes in threes, threes. exactly so, so yeah you were prepared for the mechanics but yeah it, it also is just the other Uncharted games particularly Uncharted 1 to 3 they all end on this like big action set piece that is actually like kind of the worst action set piece in the game. Like they're fine, but it's like particularly two and three both have the same like the city is crumbling and you're running away thing. And it's like that's okay, but it's not as dynamic well, and interesting. Uncharted two and three have like to a T the second act thing yeah. from a lot of action movies where like Uncharted two has the train sequence, Uncharted three has the ship sequence. And they just can never top that. Yeah. In it, terms of gameplay. Yeah, but the Lost Legacy like has some really awesome standout action sequences in the middle. But yeah, like the train thing pulls everything together because it does feel like they like looked at the train sequence from Uncharted 2 and is like, if that's how what we could do with the train sequence on the PlayStation 3. Let's show you what you can do with a fucking train sequence on the PlayStation 4, motherfuckers. Like, we're going to I mean, throw the Jeep thing in here and all the guys on, on motorcycles and all the fucking swinging mechanics and shit. We're literally going to throw the Jeep in here because there's a part where where Chloe drives the Jeep off a fucking cliff into the train. Yeah, because it is, it's the way that it escalates to the, like, nth degree. Because, yeah, like, the Uncharted 2 train sequence got kind of crazy where, it, like, obviously it ends with, like, it crashing off... The, the tracks and everything, and then where you have the Inmates Rest opening of Uncharted 2. So it's like, all that was really great. But yeah, in Uncharted 4, it's, you have this whole long sequence of, like, and it's a really interesting combat mechanics as well that are thrown in there, and so they mix in, like, actual combat with the more sort of, like, high stunt work you're basically performing, which is one of my issues with the ending of some of the other Uncharted games, is it's 
all just running away from something and they're not blending the action in with it particularly well. But you have like all the normal action sequence stuff and then it starts escalating where it's like, oh, now I have to jump off the train and get on the Jeeps and then get back on the train and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, oh, now I have to have an extended Jeep section to go like switch the tracks of the train and fight there. And then it's like, yeah, then I'm on the, tr- the Jeep and I have to tra- crash the Jeep into the train while it's moving and then fist fight the last villain while we're up against like a giant bomb as the train is hurtling towards a broken bridge because we switched the tracks. It's like the action sequence goes so many places and escalates so many times that by the time you're at the end of it, you're completely out of breath. And then like, I love the note the game ends on where they're just like sitting on the tracks and high five and we cut to credits and it's like a stylized movie credit sequence with a song by M.I.A. Yeah, with like all the chibi characters and stuff. Yeah, And it just, it feels like you just walked out of the best summer movie of the year in the the theater, you know? And, And I do think this is better than like, and this was a good summer for movies. This is better than any of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just that thing where you can't, you can't match what you like the action that you can do in a game that you can have in a movie. That it's just so much more involving and exciting. I mean, I fucking ridiculous in, in Uncharted that it could ever be in a movie. I, I've said it before, and I'll say it again: that the closest anyone has ever come to matching the excitement of, that Steven Spielberg made in Raiders of the Lost Ark is Naughty Dog with the Uncharted games. Yeah, and no one on film has ever done that better. Naughty Dog might have done it better in a game. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. So. Yeah, but let's talk about the characters in the story. All right. The story, I don't even know if there's much to say about the story, which is that they're looking for the tusk of Ganesh. There's an asshole villain. They find the tusk, you know, cut to credits. But, like, I do love the character stuff. I think Nadine might be a little underwritten in some ways, just that, like, her whole, like, motivation of, like, do I want to get my mercenary company back and it was my dad? It feels a little like a little rote to me. Sure. But Laura Bailey is so good and the moment-to-moment writing is so good. Um, but I really do like what they do with Chloe where it's it's kind of funny because it is basically the Tomb Raider backstory from the recent Tomb Raider games uh-huh. where her dad was a famous archaeologist. But I think Chloe is just that good a character and Claudia Black is just that good an actress that it all worked for me. Yeah. What did you think? Yeah, I agree that it, it's, it definitely is that much lighter sort of action-adventure story that Uncharted 1, 2, and 3 are. But I do think they have a little bit more substance in there. That, like, I, think, I like that they sort of broach issues of like multiculturalism and stuff. I did want Chloe, to talk about that, yeah. You know, is of mixed race. She's like, her dad was Indian, he was an archaeologist, and his, her mom was Australian. And that's where, you know, because Claudia Black is yeah. Australian, so she has the accent. Well, so. you know what? I think it buys them license to dive into like the mythology of the area a little more yeah. than they have in other ones. It doesn't feel as much like you're a looky-loo through this world. It's... Yeah, and it doesn't have the like white savior kind of trope thing that Uncharted just inevitably had based on the premise and the main character being, mm. you know, like white dude, poster child, Nathan Drake. Yeah, no, but I think the game really does, um, you know, excel on... Chloe being that magnetic a character, that magnetic a personality. And even as much as I like Chloe in Uncharted 2 and 3, which, you know, she's never been like the biggest Uncharted character. She's only in two of the games. So I I don't think it was a guarantee that she was going to be able to carry the game as well as she does. But she totally does. Like, just as easily as Nathan Drake. Absolutely, yeah. She's such a good... Like, she takes to this so well as the protagonist and the writers at Naughty Dog do such a good job writing for her. And then I think taking Nadine, who was... Kind of nothing of a character, I think, in Uncharted 4. Yeah, I mean, she was like the secondary antagonist. Right. And taking her here, and again, I think some of the backstory with Shoreline could have been fleshed out a little more. 
But moment to moment, she's such an interesting, fun character to have around. Plays off of Chloe so well. They're such good sidekicks. We'll talk about Sam Drake in a minute. Yeah. They throw him in, and I think at the perfect moment to kind of shake things up a little. But, yeah, I was surprised at how much I grew to like Nadine in this, them as partners, and how much at the end I was like, where's Uncharted 6? I want the next one with these yeah. two. because I think that's how you, like... See that then they kind of like prove that even because I do kind of agree that there's a couple of places in the like Nadine story arc where it feels like you needed to sort of like dig a little bit deeper into the shoreline stuff and like kind of like make that speak to the player a little bit stronger in your storytelling. But ultimately, at the end of the game, like I was so invested in the idea of these two characters pairing off and going off in the future and being like super cool best friends that go and you know plunder lost cities and have crazy adventures together that's like that's what that story needs to accomplish like that's what the story is about is these two women who are similar in some ways and different in different in other ways sort of finding those similarities and and growing from those differences and growing together as friends over the course of the story like that's what the heart of the story is about it's like that and then like the sort of the father stuff that they bond over as well and they absolutely nail the core of that story. I, I mean, and, and who else could nail it better? This yeah. is, Naughty Dog is better than literally anyone else in this industry at the basics of character writing. Yeah. And just moment to moment, listening to them talk is fucking poetry, and it's so wonderful. And they really bring it to bear here, because the story is, as we said, fairly basic. But what they do just with... As it as a vehicle for these characters is exceptional. Yeah. And it's kind of funny, when Sam Drake, the, the Troy Baker character, comes in, I kind of rolled my eyes for a second when we saw that, because I'm like, did they really feel they needed, like... Because we had a Nathan Drake conversation earlier that I found very funny, and it yeah. was a good... It was, like, the right amount of, yeah. like, addressing Nathan Drake, because it's like, you have to. He's an important character for both Chloe and Nadine for different reasons, but, like, I was worried at first that they were going to lean on that too hard, and they, like, they use it well. But I was with you that at first I was like, oh, no, I don't know if I wanted them to throw, like, actually have one of the Drake boys in here. Yeah. Although they... Earlier they do make that great joke but yeah, Sam kind of came out of nowhere, which which was funny, like Chloe saying yeah. that. I mean, I think they do set up that Sam is going to be in the story kind of subtly well, where Chloe says, like, I know Nathan well. I kind of know Sam. And, like, in the back of my head when she said that, I'm like, wait, the, the timeline of the Atari games, there's, you wouldn't have possibly known who Sam was. Yeah, like, if Sam didn't come in earlier, you would assume, like, I guess... Nate and Elena had him over, for, had both Chloe and Sam over for dinner or yeah. something. You know, like that's the closest you could come. But which I don't think they would actually do. No, that's a really that's a fucking like move. Like if you want to make the Uncharted movie, make that movie. Like I want yeah. to see that dinner that dinner conversation. Absolutely, but no. When it but then Sam is used in two great ways. One, he drives an organic wedge between Nadine and Chloe, and Chloe which yeah. I like. But then also like when he comes in, he just like adds to the chemistry. Like, he shakes the game up at a good moment, and Troy Baker is there to just be funny and weirdly charming, and he does that so well, and just to bounce off these two personalities, but he is always there to further their progress. Like, Sam doesn't have an arc in this game. I don't think Sam has an arc in life, really. (laughs) Yeah. And... But it's so wonderful to have him there to just kind of bounce off and make Chloe and Nadine actually kind of become closer because they both find this Sam Drake guy kind... They like him, but he's annoying. You know. Yeah, I mean, he he's a character foil, which is yeah. a cool, like, and he serves that role really well. And it's kind of one of the fun things about the game is, like, when the credits roll, you don't even think about, like, there's only really four kind of five characters in the game if you count the little girl from the beginning. Yeah. And one of them, Sam Drake. And, like, it, they, I like that they hold off on him for a long time. 
And then when he is revealed, I think it is at that right moment where to drive that wedge in the relationship between Chloe and Nadine, where they can have some friction. So that way, once they get over that friction, like their their partnership is even tighter. And it also does, I think, speak to something pretty natural about Chloe's character that she would not be upfront about that stuff, and that she is secretly kind of like testing Nadine in her own ways to like find out if she's trustworthy because yeah. Chloe's not going to trust anybody easily. And so, like using that. I think as a character foil works really naturally. And then when they do bring him in all the way, they keep him the right background distance of being the right kind of joke um, at the right time. And then also again, like as that foil to sort of like demonstrate how different and way more capable these two women are than Sam Drake, you know, he's like, you know, the loser of life who somehow stumbles his way into these like big crazy adventures. And then always needs someone like either Nate or Chloe to pull his ass out of the fire at the last second. And it's also fun because Sam has only been in the one game. Yeah. And a lot of that game, where Sam is, is it's a much darker place. You know, yeah. he's, he and Nate get to have a lot of fun moments in that game. I'm not going to say that game is overall super dark or anything. But, like, it is fun to have him here. Just purely fun. And also, like, it should just be a rule that from now on, when Naughty Dog makes a game, Troy Baker has to be in it. Yes. Because they are so good at writing for him. And he is so good at delivering Naughty Dog dialogue. Yeah. Um, you know, also because it's like there are no two characters more different than Joel from The Last of Us it's Sam Drake from Uncharted so you know, I so love you, that side of it of like the just polar opposite characters I, in place I love the idea that obviously Last of Us 2 is in active development yeah. at the same time this was being made I love thinking in the back of my head like that he went on the mocap stage to do like some Sam dialogue and like hey could you do some Joel lines for us today and he's like yeah Give me a couple minutes. Yeah. I'm going to go look at pictures of dead puppies or something. Yeah. So, like, get in the mood. It's like, I'm going to headbutt the wall in the hallway for five minutes, and then can you you pull me in? Yeah. Just, it's it's great. I mean, the range Naughty Dog has shown in the last couple of years is kind of extraordinary. Yeah. But, yeah, I... So let's talk about the, the, the game finishes. They high-five, which is a great ending. Yeah. Sitting there on the edge of the train tracks. Yeah, there's, there's that great moment where they, they hit Sam and the cigarette falls out of his mouth. It's like, oh, I lost my cigarette. Yep. And, uh, and then we cut to credits, and the credits are so celebratory. And I, I'll be honest. I, I know good things must come to an end. But I watch those credits roll, and I'm like... I don't want this to be the last Naughty Dog Uncharted game. Yeah. I am not ready to say goodbye to this. Yeah, it, it, I'm in the exact same place. And I would not have ever thought that after Uncharted 4. Like, I felt like... And in some ways, that's how I, I mean, that's how I felt about Uncharted 3. It's also how I felt about The Last of Us. And then, like, then it's like, you kind of see a bit more of Uncharted 4. And like, okay, this looks pretty good. And then you play Uncharted 4, you're like, holy shit. Okay, this is really fucking good. And then it's like, and then I was very much Deadstone, like, there you should, like, The Last of Us is perfect, the story is perfect, you should not make a sequel, and then they make, like, the best fucking teaser trailer for any game ever, and you're like, fucking god damn it. Okay, sure, make a sequel to The Last of Us, but there's no way, there's no way I'm accepting any more Uncharted after Uncharted 4. Like, you finished with Uncharted 3, and you pulled some fucking miracle to actually finish with Uncharted 4. There's no way you bring it back, and then, yeah, and then I ended The Lost Legacy with, like, can, like, every two years, can you just make another $40 Uncharted game starring Chloe and Nadine? Can you just, it's, The Lost Legacy 2, can we just keep this going? I don't need, I don't need an Uncharted 5, and I kind of don't want an Uncharted 5. I want these, though. I want, I want smaller, focused, crazy, big action blockbuster Uncharted games that don't have to be the big boundary-pushing AAA things. I think, like, this space that they found for The Lost Legacy is so ripe for more games like that, that, like, fucking keep making them please I want them I know and 
you know, there's so many other factors that go into this, in part because Dottie Dog can only make so many games. It's true. But they're just so good at this, and I feel like The Lost Legacy puts more gas in a tank we thought was empty. And not empty because the games ever got bad, just because Uncharted 4 got to a point where you're like, this was Nathan Drake's story, they finished it perfectly, there's no more to tell. Well, you had this character, Chloe, yeah. and you brought her out, and you made basically Uncharted 5, but with Chloe. And it's like, okay, I don't want that to be the end. I don't want there to be only one Chloe Uncharted game, yeah. especially when it is this fucking good. I would play these to the end of time. Yeah. And Also, Sully wasn't in it, and it's like, I want to see Sully hang out with Chloe, Chloe and Nadine. <laughs> like, come on. Like, what a great fucking, like, the Three Musketeers that would be. Yeah. Eventually, do the scene where they all go to dinner at Nate and Elena's house, and they're not doing it. You know, they are out of the adventure game. Oh yeah. my god, that would be the fucking best scene to like open the next Uncharted or to end the next if they'd made another one. That it is Nate and Elena at home, like Elena's pregnant or something. It's like you did sort of like setting up uh, yeah. the epilogue to Uncharted 4. And then you just have Chloe and Sam and Sully and Nadine all come in, just being like, "Man, that shit was fucking crazy!" Like I didn't even realize there were other lost cities that we didn't even know about. Like they were so lost, they weren't even hinted at in mythology. It's like, remember when Godzilla showed up? Yeah, that was nuts, and I climbed off of him and like and like got him to fire his atomic breath at like the villain. Man, that was that was some whack shit. And you just see Nathan be like, oh, "No." <laughs> Come on, guys! Like I'm basically in rehab here. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> or just like make the adventure crazy enough that Nathan looks at it and is like, "No, I'm good. Yeah. I'm good over here with my family or something." But yeah, like I just yeah, I'm at a point where I don't ever want this to end. It's so good. If this is all it is, hey, it was a phenomenal run. Yeah. But and it's not like this ends on some huge cliffhanger. But it does leave you feeling like. Naughty Dog is good enough at this, and I do not think at all they have tapped every last bit of potential out of this. It feels like they've got more to say, maybe. And yeah, if anything, I feel like The Lost Legacy sort of proves how um, durable and formidable like the core formula of Uncharted is. Yep. That like it can be completely removed from the ongoing developing like character drama of Nathan Drake and his like sort of supporting cast, and totally support a game and be a fantastic, brilliant, like one of the best games of the year. Yeah, it's like and. and that's a really remarkable thing. It's pretty rare in games that you get to see that. Now, it is. it is always rumored that at some point, Sony will just keep making these without Naughty Dog. Right. And I don't really want to see that. No. We saw what happened when that happened with Halo. And that was with some Bungie people on board. Yeah. And Halo is a dead series walking. So... I don't ever want that to happen with Uncharted, really. Yeah, like, but I think, like, the magic formula for that is so delicate that it would be... Like, you just need, like, the right kind of writing and the right kind of pacing and get the right kinds of performances to, like, sell you on those characters in that world. Yeah. And if you don't do that, it doesn't matter how much fun the combat is. Like, you have to buy into it to enjoy the combat, I think. And, you know, I think some people, sometimes... I did not realize, personally, just how big Uncharted is for Sony. I was looking at the sales numbers for Uncharted yeah. 4. It sold 10 million copies already. That's oh, yeah. Nuts. No, it's... Yeah. It's hugely... Po- so, like, there is every incentive in the world to keep this thing going. And we'll see what happens with it. I, I would not mind if Naughty Dog decided to carve out some time. They don't need to update the engine or anything right now. Exactly, yeah. Like, maybe just when, like a, an extra mechanic, a small yeah. improvement or two. You know, and maybe when we get to like the PlayStation 5 one day, they have to do something bigger. But yeah, I do think it would be worth doing one or two more like this and just 
it is it is so good. I'll be interested to see how the Lost Legacy sells and all this because this was also like a total accident that right, they yeah. started out developing like you know basically Uncharted Left Behind like a two hour thing, yeah. and then it's like oh fuck we made an eight hour game. I mean it's very much the ODST parallel yes. of like ODST started out its life as a small expansion and then they're like ah oh, fuck we, right. this ended up being a full like eight hour campaign. But I mean if we here's the thing if we're sitting here this jazzed about it I have to imagine there's a team of people at Naughty Dog feel in the same way yeah. that they like went gold on this and then felt like well fuck I don't I don't want to face never making an Uncharted game again you know <laughs> but who knows I look I will play whatever Naughty Dog makes in the future the rest of my life they have yeah. bought that loyalty Absolutely. over these last 10 years and uh, like I saw a really kind of crazy figure the other day that like I didn't see what the specific numbers of of what the Lost Legacy sold, but it was just um, you know we, the one of the only reliable sources of video game sales we get is like the UK sales charts because video game sales are fucking weird in the United States for a lot of reasons. But apparently, Uncharted: The Lost Legacy is the sixth PlayStation Four exclusive to top the UK charts this year, Jeez. which is fucking nuts. It's, it's why this has been such a crazy year for video games is that Sony over here has had just hit after hit after hit after hit, and then Nintendo over yeah. here has had hit after hit after hit. And if you have overlap in those audiences like me, it's overwhelming. Uh-huh. You know? I mean, even if I, you don't have a Switch like me, yes, I no, can't right. fucking keep up with it. No, you're like, right. I just got Yakuza Kiwami and Destiny 2 comes out in a week. I know. It's... It's absolutely. Here's Sean. I've been. I keep like my running tally throughout the year of games I've played. How stressed are you about the top ten this year? Fuck yeah. I've, I'm already at a point where I know I'm going to leave off games I loved, mm-hmm. like just flat out loved. Yeah. So, and we're not even. We have so many games left. I think I was counting because I also have a count like for personal uh, timeline and like financial reasons. How many games am I getting the rest of yeah. the year? And I have like eight left to go. It's nuts. Yeah. Like I still haven't played Hellblade. Because it's yeah. like, I was thinking like, oh, Hellblade will be easy to pick, get because it's not that long and it's only like 30 bucks. And then I realized, I bought like five games this month that are like 30 or 40 bucks. I spent more money on games this month than I usually do in a month. And none of them were full price fucking games. And I didn't even buy Hellblade. Yeah, so it's a thing. Anyway, um, yeah, well, what a year for games. This is, I think, in terms of a year for games that like I have followed closely... The best of my whole life, and I know we said that last year, but this is like 2016 on crack. Yeah, it's fucking crazy, and I would have never expected that I would have enjoyed Uncharted: The Last Legacy as much as I did. No, I wouldn't have either, because I also like. I think that they, again, Sony did not show this game off a ton, which I think was smart. But the little demos they did show, I don't think they picked like the best moments from the game to show off. So I was kind of thinking, well, that looks kind of you know whatever, and then you play it and. Oh man, yeah. cannot recommend it enough. Yeah, it was very much when they first showed it off that that real like, oh, you're making another Uncharted thing feel, and then it's like, I used to play it like, please make more Uncharted things. I know. How, and how do you keep on putting me in this place? I feel like I should be the last person that would be in this place. I didn't even like these games that much the first time I played them. How am now I'm like crazy obsessed with them? Yeah. So I've been thinking about this. My quick Uncharted rankings. It's always been the easiest thing in the world for me because I think each one is better than the one before it. But now I have to figure out where to slot in the Lost Legacy. Yeah. I think Uncharted 4 is still the best one overall. I would put The Lost Legacy just under that. Yeah. I, I think mm. I, I think they are the I think the Uncharted 4s, if we want to call them that, are the best two. I think I'd probably agree with that. Like Uncharted 3, I really love I love that one yeah. too, but yeah. I think I'd probably agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I just cuz you get you kind of get the best of both worlds with The Lost Legacy. Yeah. So, anyway, let's move on and talk about Twin Peaks. 
How do we make this transition, Sean? Uh, Uncharted The Lost Legacy was really good, and so was Twin Peaks. Speaking here. of things that were good, Twin Peaks The Return, episode 16. Well, here, I'll say this. So, you know, uh, there's a line at one point in this episode. Okay, spoilers, because I'm going to spoil the shit out of this oh, episode yes. in a yeah, second here. Absolutely. But um, <laughs> let me see if I can find the line that I'm looking for. Um, okay, there's a point in Twin Peaks Part 16, and again, you don't want it spoiled. Spoilers. Yeah. Where a fully awake Agent Dale Cooper uh-huh. says to his, his new family, you've made my heart so full. Uncharted The Lost Legacy made my heart very full, and so did this episode of Twin Peaks. Okay, that's way too much work to okay, put in to make a fucking segue, Jonathan. Jesus Christ. Well, we're, we've segued. Now we'll talk about Twin Peaks. Okay. Sean. How how like, full? I climbed at least two mountains and, and, and toppled two peaks in Uncharted games, and so Twin Peaks. <laughs> Sean, how yeah. full did this episode make your heart? Oh God, how great was this? It's just unbelievable. Okay, so we even are... as someone who is a steadfast, and I still until the series is over, I like you know don't take anything for granted. This could be an extended dream sequence. Who knows? I'm as a dead like Dougie Jones never never wakes up candidate. I, I did have a really good time when when Dougie Jones woke up. There's so much to talk about in this episode, but yeah, uh, Dougie Jones woke up, and I love that there wasn't even at the moment like a ton of fanfare around it. Yeah, you know, no, did, yeah, there was it, the, it wasn't like the. I feel like of course Stone Peach would do this, but like a normal TV show would do the like build up, build up, build up, and at the last like scene of the episode is like. Like, like you know, Dougie sitting up and then, like, giving a look into the camera or something that's, like, very clearly, like, I'm Dale Cooper. And yeah. then cutting to black. It does not do that. No, it's, it's his first scene in the episode. And what that does is that makes this, again, a full unified episode of television where you get to have him wake up and then we get to spend time with that for about an hour. Yeah. You know? And there's, there's a scene with Evil Cooper at the beginning. There's the scene with Audrey at the end. Most of the middle of this episode is all Coop all the time. Yeah. And we'll get into the specifics. But boy howdy, have David Lynch and Mark Frost not lost a beat writing for this guy. Yeah. Boy howdy, has Kyle MacLachlan not lost a beat playing him. It was eerie how much he felt like uh, Dale Cooper of 25 years ago. Exactly, yeah. When he turns and says, I am the FBI. Chills. And also applause. Yeah. But like, it was like, oh my god, you look... Like, obviously Kyle MacLachlan looks older, but in that moment, it felt like he hadn't been gone a day. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like, and it is... It's one of my favorite things about how they handle the waking up thing, is that like, it's just like, he's awake, and he's just going. Like, full 120%, and, and he remembers everything about being Dougie, like, he's still that person. And it like, I like how clear that bridge is between uh-huh. Dale and, and, and the sort of like comatose Dougie Jones but like once he's Dale Cooper and he has his purpose he just goes for 120% the way that Dale Cooper did in Twin Peaks and like like sort of brings out things about those, that character that I kind of forgotten was like the feel of that character and how he operates because we're so used to seeing him in this very familiar setting and story over the course of the two seasons of Twin Peaks and here he just feels so fresh again because it's like he's got a fully new purpose and he's just like I'm going to fucking do it. I'm going to make use of all the attachments and everything I have gained in my weird life as Dougie Jones to accomplish what I need to do. 
The show, I mean, we're, this is the third episode in a row that I think is just a straight-up fucking masterpiece. Yeah. And when we talked, like, with part 14, like, yeah, this is one of the best three episodes. Part 15, this is one of the best four episodes. Part 16, it's better than the last two. Yeah. It's like each one of these. It's just clearly in this home stretch. It's what we. It's the best version of what we have said and hoped for all along, which is that Lynch and Frost know the story they are telling. They are telling it very meticulously. And now that we're down the home stretch, good God, the payoff is off the charts, amazing. Oh yeah, it's like, just, and also, it, yeah, you, you get to the end of this episode, and there are a lot of balls left in the air for the last two hours of this thing. I have one hundred percent confidence it's going to be exactly right. Yeah. You know, I have. I'm not going into this with any of the sense of like, oh, there's too much for the next two hours. It feels like they know what they're doing. This was the right episode to be the penultimate episode, and we are going into the finale in the exact right place. Yeah. And going back to something you said earlier, like, it is just such a joy that you get to basically spend this whole episode with Cooper. Like, like you don't have to have that, like, weird, like, tension of, like, oh, they kind of introduced him, and then you have to wait a week to be like, are they going to do this right? Is this going to work? Like, how are you going to pull this off? It's like, you get to see, like, yes, no, like, they know exactly what they're doing with this character, and you get to spend time with Dale Cooper and get to have that kind of, like, tension relief here, this, like, last breath of, like, oh, man, I feel so safe and comfortable with this person. And then, of course, like, the episode ends with one of, like, the more disturbing, like, psychologically disturbing scenes of Twin Peaks Third Turn to, like, set up, like, now we're going to have to go into this shit, but at least we have our light of Dale Cooper with us this time. Because this episode is all about payoff. It yeah. brings at least three characters to very definitive endings. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and it, it sets up, I mean, it has... All this payoff on everything in Vegas and the Dougie Jones stuff. It has, um, you know, I, I think we'll probably see Janie and Sonny Jim again next week. But this is effectively their denouement, I think. Yeah. And their coda. And we'll see what happens next week. Um, you've got Evil Cooper being set up for whatever his final moves are. Yeah. We know where Audrey is. And I think a sense of how she's going to play into sort of, at least thematically, where things yeah. are going. If not... It sort of contextualizes a lot, of, recontextualizes a lot of the scenes we have seen with Audrey and, like, gives you a lot yep. of ideas on how to approach those now. I also um, think, there's like... There's a lot of... There's, like, I mean, a killer fucking scene with the FBI that, like, sets them up. Oh, then, God, yes. The, Jesus. The, the next sequence. It's crazy. This is an episode so good, it's almost easy to forget Laura Dern giving, like, career best work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, Laura Dern is always great. That was just a particularly great Laura Dern scene. So, boy, howdy. This was a fucking episode of TV... And, um, man, oh, man, let's talk about it. All right. All right. Where do we start, Jonathan? You've well, got the notes. I do have the notes. I should, I'm at 55 pages on my notes document for Twin Peaks. I'll have to share this online when we're done next week. But anyway, um, we start with uh, what you have called the Evil Cooper shot, which is the dark winding highway yeah. at night, you know, shrouded in darkness. I feel and, like whenever you see this shot, you know, you're in for something real good on this show. Oh, yeah. Because, and, and like, the way the camera moves, uh, Lynch also does this later in the episode when uh, Good Coop is driving through Las yeah. Vegas, where it's like the car's POV, like when you're playing Forza and you go into that weird POV. Yeah, where it's like person. on the hood or something weird. Right. Like, where... What am I even looking at? Yeah, like, I don't quite know how he mounted the camera, but it's, like, it's super stable and seemingly disembodied. And then what we have is Richard and uh, Dark Cooper are driving together, and uh, they pull onto a dirt road, and there's this great long shot that will eventually become Jerry Horn's POV as they pull... Right. He comes in here. He comes in because we haven't seen him in a couple of episodes. We even get a little... 
Chatting and with I, him. I predicted this almost to a T, that his story would, like, at some point climax with him running into someone encountering the other dimension. Yeah. And that's what happened. I thought it would happen with uh, the sheriff's people, but instead it happens with Evil Coop here. But yeah, so they're checking the coordinates, and then they stop at this fork in the road, and they kind of look curiously at their surroundings. Flip, And then there's this great shot where he flips on the truck's top lights, and then we have that long shot panning over to see the lights turning and focusing on this rock on the hill. And Cooper sends Richard over and says, I'm looking for a place. Three people have given me coordinates to that place. Two of the coordinates match. What would you do, Richard? I'd check the two that match. You're a very bright young man, and we're very close to the two that match. It's right up there. And he convinces him to go up there. In the midst of this, Jerry Horn shows up, still on his drug adventures, and he goes... People and he's on this like adjacent hill. Pulls out his binoculars and holds them the wrong way, so everything looks further yeah. off. And just but, goes like he spends like three minutes like yes. slowly doing it, and you know that he's going to put them on the wrong way. But like the incredibly deliberate way he does it, and then holds it up to only one eye. Yep, it's very good. And he says, "Dear God," <laughs> which is great. And at this point, I wrote in all caps, "I knew this was going somewhere." And I'd like to point out. Literally every strand in Twin Peaks The Return has gone somewhere. Mm-hmm. And this is 16 episodes in, including Jerry Horn's drug trip, yeah. which no one would have blamed Lynch and Frost if it was just a com- comedic interlude. Yeah. But even it kind of intersected somewhere. All right, so more ominous music. They get up towards the rock, and uh, Cooper makes an interesting line here. He says, I'm 25 years your senior. Take this and get up on up there. It'll beep when you're close and make a continuous tone when you're on it. Let me know what you find. And uh, we'll have to talk about, like, because there's some controversy around, was this a good payoff for Richard? I love that Richard's whole payoff is, like, he gets with his dad, and he kind of, in a weird, dark way, wants to impress him. And it leads mm-hmm. to Richard climbing up onto that rock. A lot of great um, cinematography here. Like, there's this shot of his shadow on the rock, yeah. which will be repeated where, na- where later, when he gets electrocuted, it's his shadow disappearing yeah. on the ground. So there's a bunch of great stuff there. And uh, eventually the device is beeping, he gets there, and out of nowhere is just electrified. I wrote that it looks like he has become a firework, like a sparkler, until his body just disappears. And then uh, Cooper says, oh, goodbye, my son. And that's how David Lynch does the formal reveal that Dark Coop, or uh, Richard is Dark Coop's son. Yes, thus endeth Dick Horn. I love this! It's really good, yeah. Like, I, I understand the the sort of... The issues that some people have with like whether or not that's a good payoff to the character, but there's something so appropriate about it to me of that like because because for Evil Coop, it just gives you the sense of like Dick Horn is not anything special to him. Like no. he probably has, I mean, we know because it's a, it's a something that comes up in the Laura Dern, Dern scene later. Like we know he has raped multiple women and probably like way more than we know about, and probably has several children. All over the place. And I think that's something you kind of get that sense of, like, whether literally, like, like with Dick Horn or figuratively, like, the presence of Bob or Evil Coop and what he symbolizes is sort of causing the world to fracture apart into kind of chaos and, and Armageddon. And so it feels appropriate to me that, like, Dick Horn is just, like, one small piece of that. Why would any, why would he be concerned? Like, he's just one small agent of the chaos. Nothing that, yeah. that, that is that important. No, I feel fully... I, I love this as an ending for Richard Horn, because what he is ultimately is one of the many arbiters of evil that trace back up to Dark Coop. Yeah. And I don't think it's Lynch saying, like, all evil starts and ends with this version of Kyle MacLachlan. 
But it is in this story, this good versus evil story we're kind of telling, he is that embodiment and it all goes back to him. And Richard was a splinter of him out in the yeah. world. And the confrontation next week needs to be with Dark Cooper. So just from basic... And again, I think the scripts for Twin Peaks The Return should be studied in film school for just basic narrative structure. Because as weird as it is, it has the basics down so pat you don't even notice it most of the time. Yeah. But as we are heading towards the climax, it needs to be focused on who is our core antagonist. It is Evil Cooper. And getting Richard out of the picture here in a way that gives us more narrative information and wackiness... Is exactly yeah. right, and and sets up Evil Cooper as more of a villain. Like the yeah. fact that he doesn't recognize anything about a, some some sort of like fucking familial bond between him and yeah. Richard Horn, which I think a lot of people probably suspected would happen, felt like could have been a setup from the last episode when they kind of hooked up. You just realize, like, no, he's like had probably a mild curiosity in this yeah. kid, but is perfectly willing to just let him die which I think it just feels appropriate to get that shade of the character and just sort of really like 100% clarify he has no interest in any positive human element at all whether it be family or love or anything yeah he has some goal that we are still at least partially in the dark about and there are two coordinate locations he's been given one of them was this trap he has now eschewed that trap and now he is going for whatever the real location is yeah and that's kind of the setup for the finale, and Good Cooper clearly knows what's up. Yeah. So, like, and, you know, in some ways, when we t- well, we'll talk later about, like, the whole Dougie arc and all this. Part of why Cooper had to be Dougie for 16 episodes is because if Cooper were just awake and out in the world, he'd have solved all of this by now. Sure, He's yeah. too good an agent, you know? Like, and there's something about, like, especially once you've set him up that way in Old Twin Peaks... All these disparate threads, Cooper is the mystery in this show. That is intentionally the story they were telling. It's not stalling. Cooper had to wake up when he woke up because now he's in that position. He was the mystery. Anyway, uh, the last thing to say about this scene, two things, is that after all the electrocution, Jerry starts banging his binoculars and goes, Bad, bad, bad binoculars! Which is a great moment. I love Jerry. And then uh, back at the truck, Cooper sends a smiley emoji and the word all to Diane, but we will see that later. Yeah. So, we don't know it's Diane in the moment. But, I think most people probably suspected. Yes. He's been texting with somebody a lot. Yes. Uh, and my last notes on this scene were just, holy fucking shit. Yeah. Alright, then we have a scene at Dougie's neighborhood. A uh, vehicle approaches. It's uh, it's Hutch and Chantal. Yes, the uh, wayward assassins. Yep. They're eating some junk food, watching the house. Um, a few black cars pull up, and we see that the FBI is also looking around. And so uh, they are on the correct Dougie's trail. Everyone here is looking for Dougie. Meanwhile, uh, we're in the hospital. Dougie is on a ventilator. A bunch of wires hooked up to him. Janie and Sunny Jim are sitting with him. Uh, she's stroking his hand. Uh, Bushnell is there, uh, Dougie's yes. boss. We learn that Dougie's in a coma. Janie is worried he'll be in it for years. Uh, Sunny Jim asks if it has anything to do with electricity, which in this case it very much does, as Bushnell <laughs> points out. Anyway, and then uh, great detail is the Mitchum brothers come in with a comically large basket of flowers saying, get well soon, Dougie. And they they have their three pink ladies with them bringing a bunch of miniature sandwich, or finger sandwiches, Candy explains. And uh, they want a house key so they can go stock Dougie's house up too. Um, So just a great little moment here where I love like this weird extended family. Dougie has... Maybe, I would say inadvertently, but Cooper seems awfully aware of what he has done. So maybe inadvertently yeah, built. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing that the, all the, you know, little sort of like breadcrumb 
breadcrumb trails that the Red Room visions or whatever the fuck they were led him to was having Batlin' Bud Bushnell on his side and then getting the Mitchum brothers on his side and, like, dedicated to this this guy yeah. so that when he wakes up, he has all these tools available to him and also has, like, righted all these wrongs in the world and, and sort of uncovered the hearts of gold that the uh, Mitchum brothers have and all that stuff. It's We'll talk about all that later. It's so great. Um, we have a brief cut at this point to Gordon Cole in the hotel and he's in a room with a bunch of devices and they're whirring and beeping and obviously it's a it's an interesting thematic cut because it's all this like machinery and then we cut back to Dougie's monitor beeping. I don't even know what the stuff Gordon Cole was looking at was really, but maybe we'll see more of that. It's an interesting little like thematic cut they do. Yeah. That also sets up us going back there later. Right. Yeah. Um, so Sonny Jim has to pee, so Janie takes him to the little boy's room. Of course Janie calls it that, because she would. Yeah. Um, Bushnell gets a call, it's the FBI, they're looking for, for Dougie, and apparently they're going to be there in a few minutes. And um, Bushnell comes over and kind of examines Dougie more closely, this is setting up the awakening that is soon to happen. Meanwhile though, we get a scene that is easy to overlook in this episode, because there's so much other good stuff. But we get the climax of the Hutch and Chantel story... At the house. So the Mitchum brothers are there delivering food. And um, the FBI is there kind of watching. And then uh, a big white, you know, so they get the, they, the big white limo comes and they do all that. But then after all of that, the van pulls away. The Mitchums are like in Dougie's house, like getting it ready because they love Dougie so yeah. much. And I love that they love Dougie so much. Then this little white car, which says on the side, Zawaski Accounting Incorporated. Who knows if that will be important. Yeah. <laughs> pulls up to Hutch and Chantel. And this bald guy gets out and confronts them. Says, you're in my driveway. And uh, Chantel, being who she is, shouts back, we're not even close to your fucking driveway, asshole. Go fuck yourself. And he goes, all right, I'll move my car. And then he just starts crashing into their car. And Chantel is enraged and, like, shoots at the guy. And then he gets out a fucking Uzi. Yeah. And starts shooting. And... Uh, Tim Roth gets out a shotgun and it is completely ridiculous. Chantel like hits the guy's car and almost kills him, but then he gets back, completely just obliterates Chantel and then obliterates Hutch too. And then the Mitchums are out there with their guns. And the kicker to this whole scene is they're like in cover watching and they go, "What the fuck kind of neighborhood is this? People are under a lot of stress, Bradley." Yeah, <laughs> and I think that like is such a great kicker to the entire Vegas thread of Twin yeah. Peaks The Return. People are under a lot of stress. And so the Mitchums just go back in their house like, we need to wait this out. And then finally the FBI come and arrest the maniac accountant. Yeah. and uh, who, who just like very politely just like puts his gun on the ground, puts his head in the hands above his head like he doesn't resist arrest at all. This is like a very calm reaction to a dude who just... Freak the fuck out! Tried to shove this like van uh, like out of his driveway, and then pulled a fucking submachine gun out and blew them away. Because it's also like it's an extended sequence too, because he shoots through like their their window and has to take cover behind his car. Then the the car gets shoved and he falls over, and then yeah. the, the Chantels and and uh, the raw the. Hutch, Hutch, uh, their their van drives by, and the guy gets back up, reloads his gun, and just fires like a hundred bullets into the back of the van and kills them all. It's just like, what the fuck? It's another of the very subtle but present like undercurrent in Twin Peaks: The Return of random American citizens being extremely well armed, yeah, and, and gun violence, yeah. Which I'm curious if that is going to come up 
next episode. I don't like, know. I, my gut kind of tells me that that was just what that was, but there's a chance that maybe he was an assassin or something. But it's a great ending to that whole like thread of the show. Yeah. Because I've also like I've called this the Mitchum brothers stuff and the Hutch stuff. All of that feels like to me. Uh, David Lynch was up late one night surfing channels and saw a double feature of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction yeah. and decided, and I'm sure he had never seen Quentin Tarantino before, and then he decided, I want to riff on this in my new Twin Peaks series. Yo, this stuff's pretty good! Let's do our own version of it! Yeah. And basically just told everyone to like, because Tim Roth is, you know, one of the big Tarantino actors, yeah. just like, do a Quentin Tarantino movie. And this is totally plays to me like a really good send-up of a Tarantino shootout. Yeah. You know? Like... It's all, it all feels like it's in that vein. It is, because David Lynch, especially in the later phase of his career, I would say like Mulholland Drive to now, loves doing these like genre riffs, and mm-hmm. this is totally one of those, yeah. and I just love it. it. It also kind of does feel like, oh, we had Hutch and Chantel out there cleaning up loose ends, now we've got to clean them up. Let's just go for it. Yeah. So, got that, they got that Showtime money, man. Do a full shootout. That's yeah. great. But that's a hell of a scene. And uh, then we're back to Dougie in the hospital. And this is a great detail, is Bushnell is there kind of with him alone, and then he hears this mysterious ringing tone, and if I'm not mistaken, it's the same sound that Ben Horn and Beverly hear at the Great Northern. Yeah, I made that connection as well. Yeah, which is a really interesting little detail. He can't find the source, so he goes out in the hallway wandering off. And now that Dougie is alone, a chair in the room turns into the Red Room and Mike, the one-armed man, and Dougie just gets up, rips the ventilator out, which would hurt a lot, but he does it. And uh, Mike asks, you're awake? 100%. Oh, fucking man. Yeah. What, what was your reaction when he sits up and says 100%? I think they're just like, like mouth agape, just like, they're, oh shit, they're doing it. Like, because yep. again, it's the thing of like, you, they were probably like, you know, I have my joke about like, oh, they were never going to do it. They're, he was going to become Dale Cooper at some point in some capacity. But like, I didn't expect it to just be that like snap. Transformation and he's just there immediately, and like like you said, eerily immediately recognizable as that character just from the get go. Like that, one, and it's, like one hundred twenty percent is, and yeah. it's weirdly an uphill climb they have to make because Kyle MacLachlan has played like four other characters on this show over yeah. the last sixteen hours. Yeah, to the point that you've kind of forgotten Dale Cooper, other than in like the little clips of Fire Walk with Me. We right, well, he's like won the scene in that yeah. movie. Yeah, so. Anyway, in this scene, we get a bunch of exposition because uh, Mike goes, finally, which speaking for the audience, says, the other one, he didn't go back in, he's still out, take this, and he passes the green ring to Dougie, or, I, can't, I kept calling him Dougie for like another page or so uh-huh. in my notes, but to Cooper, I guess we have to call him, and so Cooper takes the green ring, so that's going to come into play, and Cooper asks, do you have the seed, <laughs> whatever that is, and Mike shows him a little gold ball, which we have seen before, yeah. I think the actual Douglas Jones turned into that little thing. Yes. And we'll see it again later on with um, Laura Derna, Diane. Yeah. So that's interesting. So um, shows him a little gold ball, and, and Cooper then like pulls some of his own hair out, passes it to Mike, and says, I need you to make another one. And that's the end of that interaction. So a ton to dissect there. Uh-huh. So for one, Cooper, throughout all of this, was never unaware of what was going on. He knew the stakes. He knew, like, the rules. He knows more than any of us. Again, a reason why he kind of had to be comatose is because he would... He knew all of this. It's yeah. The mystery is about him, and he's the answer to all of it. Um, so there is this weird thing with doubling, and Cooper knows the rules of this. He has the green ring because he knows this is how he can defeat evil Cooper, which we knew from last week with the yeah. assassin. 
So all of that is very fascinating. Um, what will happen next, who knows? But he, there is the hint here that he's asking to make another, like, clone, basically. Yeah. And I'm curious what that's for. The, the most obvious fan theory is that he will make a real Douglas Jones to, like, go back and live with the family. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I think there's also, does. it could be some part of his endgame with Evil Cooper. I don't like to speculate because you never know, but yeah. it does leave a lot of doors open. And yeah, one of my favorite things about it is like it just sets up immediately that like while this is very recognizably the same person of, of Special Agent Dale Cooper that you know from old Twin Peaks, he has access to all this knowledge that old Dale Cooper didn't have that that old Dale Cooper wanted to have, you know, of yeah. like the Red Room and this other dimension and all these weird arcane mystic rules that, you know, old Dale Cooper would go on and on about Tibet and how like he has these dreams and stuff and it's kind of like flirting on the edges of this sort of like supernatural world. And here he's just utterly a part of it in the, in the same way that like it felt like Philip Jeffries was. Um, yeah. That, you know, who's another person that was a normal FBI agent at some point that then turned into a giant, like, ornate teapot that, that belches numbers. Yeah. Which is like, maybe Dale Cooper's transformation is not quite as extreme as that, but he does feel like he is utterly integrated into this other world in a way that none of the other normal human characters are. You know, in a way that, like, Evil Cooper is. And Evil Cooper understands the rules of that world and can go to the convenience store and interacts with the dirty bearded man and all that stuff. We've seen him, like, very consciously understand that world in a way that, like, you know, the FBI had, kind of has to tiptoe around and sort of, like, decipher all these clues and sort of figure out some of what the rules are and sort of half-guess at them and stare at, in awe at these hell portals. And Dale Cooper's just, like, wakes up, looks at a vision of Mike in the red room, like, in a small form in the chair and is just like, here, take my hair, make another one of those things, bye. It's like, okay, shit, yeah, you know all this stuff. He's enlightened. He yeah. spent 25 years in the Red Room, and he is now like a transcendent being. Yeah. He's become like Buddha Cooper or something. Exactly. And he has a mission. So then Janie, E, and Sonny Jim come back in, totally shocked. And we have his first words to his family. Hello, Sonny Jim. Hello, Janie, E. And uh, it's great. Um, at one point, he, uh, he asked Bushnell for some sandwiches. He's like, I'm very hungry. Give me some of those finger sandwiches. All of that is great. Um, he say he's got to get out of here And Janie says I don't know if that's a good idea And Cooper says it's a good idea And then the nurse is checking his vitals and goes It is a good idea <laughs> Which is wonderful um, And then the kicker to this whole scene for me is They're out in the hallway and Because uh, Cooper says go get the car And uh, Sonny Jim says Dad sure is talking a lot Yeah he sure is Sonny Jim yeah. This is like kind of the One of the few times that any character Has ever acknowledged directly just how weird Dougie was. Yep. It's like everyone has just sort of quietly accepted it, and now that he's talking, he's like, he is talking a lot, huh? Yep. So we have the last scene between Bushnell and Cooper here, where he says, Bushnell, I'm going to need the 32 snub nose you wear on in the shoulder holster, holster under your left arm. And that's one of those moments where I just wrote in my notes, like, it's Cooper. Yeah. Holy crap. But it's great. He has all these instructions. He asks to get the Mitchum brothers on the phone. Um, he calls him, and he says, you know, there's this, and then there's this moment where we cut to the Mitchum brothers, and, uh, uh, we, well, we get the phone conversation where he says, yeah. "We need you're going to protect my family at the casino, and I need a plane to Spokane, Washington. Yeah. And then um, as the Mitchum brothers say, I wonder what Dougie's up to now, we start with the Twin Peaks theme. Yeah. Um, falling, 
the, the, the main theme. And uh, all of this is falling into place, where Cooper has this plan, it's all coming together. And then we have the last scene with Bushnell where he says, I have a feeling a man named Gordon Cole will call here. If he does, read him this message. And like hands him a little piece of paper. Shakes Bushnell's hand and says, you're a fine man, Bushnell Mullins. I will not soon forget your kindness and decency. This is another just like pure Dale Cooper line. And then the purest. Yeah. What about the FBI? I am the FBI. And the way they shoot it, like David Lynch is so aware of the iconography of original Twin Peaks, even though... I think this is from an episode he didn't direct, but it's the shot, like, side shot on Cooper. He doesn't literally do the thumbs up, but it's basically the, the shot that launched a thousand gifts uh-huh. of Cooper looking to the camera and giving the thumbs up as he says, I am the FBI. Yeah. So fantastic. Again, like, Lynch is a total experimental filmmaker on Twin Peaks The Return. He is also a consummate crowd pleaser, because if this were playing in a movie theater with, like, 200 people... There would be raucous applause at that uh-huh. line. It's so good, especially because we just had to, we had to work for it. You know? We did. did. We didn't get it in episode four. We got it in episode fucking sixteen. Indeed. So they get in the car. Um, uh, Dougie says, "Move over. I'll drive." Yeah. Don't worry, Janie. E. And then the Twin Peaks theme is playing under all of this. And he's cruising down the road, asking how to get to the casino. And we have the great kicker with Sonny Jim saying, "Dad can drive." Really good. And I wrote in my notes, Janie looks more hot for him than ever. Yeah. Which is very true. Oh, man. All of this stuff is so good. There's a few more scenes with uh, with Cooper here. And we'll get to those in a second. But I think this is probably a good time to address because you mentioned, like, the waiting made it so worth it. So let's talk for a moment about the arc of Mr. Douglas Jones right. and his reawakening now into Cooper. And it took 16 episodes. I wouldn't change a moment of it. Oh, no. Yeah. It's... It's perfect. Like it, it's something that it just feels like it's such a confident setup for the finale that I'm so curious to see. Like in more like thematic sense, what is Dale Cooper going to be for this show in, in its conclusion? Because yeah. I feel like Dougie was this lens through which we like occupied this weird like apathy and this weird sort of criticism of modernity through this like vacuous man who just wandered through life, and yet him just being there sort of like parroting what was happening around him was kind of like the nicest person around in Las Vegas and that like strange sense of that sort of surreal story of again like this this sort of vacuous entity that in his vacuousness somehow is noble and somehow brings out the best of the people around him what does him being like filled with this like brimming personality of Dale Cooper do for the show going forward because I think like Dougie was the heart of Twin Peaks The Return. And, like, he has been the heart of Twin Peaks The Return since episode three, all the way up to episode 16. He has been, like, our rock, you know, that we haven't necessarily checked in with him heavily every single episode. But even in, like, the one episode where the only shot we saw of him was him playing catch with Sonny Jim, that was, like, one of the most memorable shots of that entire episode. And he is the rock, and he's the rock in so many ways because you have... So many tones being channeled through Douglas Jones. You have the high comedy. You have some really sweet and tender stuff. You have satire. You have the metaphysical. You have so many things going through this. I think it is so much also one of the thematic linchpins of the show. And I think it has been entertaining and interesting throughout. And yes, the wait was worth it. Because I think the other thing is that, and I think it is worth it to consider, that what we want is not always what we need out of entertainment. Exactly. And if you told me a year ago, we're getting 18 episodes of New Twin Peaks, 
what are you most excited for? And I might have said 18 hours of Dale Cooper. Most people would have said that. Yeah. But here's the thing. With everything Lynch and Frost wanted to do with this show, Dale Cooper would have overshadowed all of that. Oh, yeah. He's too big a personality. It's too kind of big a performance. And there's too many other things that were on their mind. And sometimes you have to look at, like, okay, we have this great character, but he's like, it's, it's, like, it's a sometimes food. You can't have him all the time or else... It's going to overshadow everything else. And so the invention of Douglas Jones and how organically that felt important to the story and allowed Kyle MacLachlan to do all these other wonderful things and the show to walk all these other wonderful paths, including those that had nothing to do with Kyle MacLachlan, I think that's really important. And and it will make these last three hours where we have had and will have Dale Cooper feel all the more impactful and important. And I also like that this episode does a really good job contextualizing it. That Cooper lived all of this. He felt the love, he felt the joy, the excitement, and he is ready when he wakes up. And it feels very much like a metaphor for the show, which is, or for the viewing experience, that Cooper is, is tacitly telling us in these moments where we realize he remembers everything that this wasn't a time waster, this yeah. wasn't a time suck. I remember this, this all made my heart full. You as a viewer, it should have made your heart full as well. Even if you wanted to get to me faster, if, even if I wanted to wake up faster, this is how it had to be. And I think the show kind of tacitly acknowledging all of that is part of what makes it all feel like it, it just lands it so perfectly here. Yeah, like it recognizes that everything that we went through with Dougie was valuable. Mm-hmm. That, that we were like, while you do get this nice reward of this like nostalgia hit, this like just deep fucking nostalgia bump you get um, from Dale Cooper showing up. Like, we had to have that experience with Dougie to to get to this place and to explore the themes that we were exploring, too. Because, like you said, Dale Cooper is way too overpowering of a character. He's too bright a shining light of hope, you know, that even the darkest, like, hours of the original Twin Peaks, he was there to sort of brighten you up. I mean, quite literally in the pilot, the first half of the pilot is, like, 40 minutes of people crying, and then Dale Cooper comes in and, like, doesn't necessarily save the day. You know, he doesn't solve the crime in the first episode, but he gives you this hope of, like, there's we can be better and we can do better and we can do something about this problem. And having him absent in there and having this, like, shadow of him in, in Dougie was needed to sort of, I think, dive into this really, really dark place we have. Even when we have had, like, the comedy and we have had the lightness and we've had these heartwarming moments in Twin Peaks The Return, you know, like with with the last episode with Big Ed and all that stuff, like, this has been a fundamentally incredibly dark, like, dour, intense TV show. I mean, there's no greater evidence of that than episode eight, you know, that is, like, one of the most intense or maybe the most intense episode or hour of television I've ever seen. Like coming out of that and having um, Dale Cooper be this like salve and this balm at the end of that experience and recognizing that we had to go through all these steps and we had to go through all these stages to get to this place where now we can deal with it. Like, of course, we had to go through the shit before we can deal with the shit. And it's like it's it's, it's an important element of the show. The, the you know, the the sort of semi-official title of this series is Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah. And that's what it is about. It is about returning and if Dale Cooper was there in episode one, eating donuts and, and having damn yeah, good cherry give pie. Give him a thumbs up. There, would, there wouldn't be the return. Uh-huh. It would just be, we have returned. Yeah. And it is about that act of returning. And, you know, when we talk also about Cooper being this big a character, this is also Lynch and Frost acknowledging he spent 25 years in the Red Room. The world has moved on 25 years. Yeah. He comes out of it with a different... You know, sense of self. He is transcended and transcendent in so many ways, 
And that is not a sustainable character for 18 hours. But yeah. for three? Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. And it's just it's something that I was so relieved when it became very evident that he remembered everything that happened. Yes. He had these, this relationship with Janie E and Sonny Jim that he recognized that he loves these people. He considers them his family because it felt so validating, I think, to like what we have been taking away from the show. That yeah. like the, the idea of a, a much more conventional TV show approach to that kind of story is like... Oh, we have to have a whole episode dealing with like, oh, he doesn't know like fish out of water, blah 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 blah. blah. That's like a lot of narrative work that I think a lot of TV shows would feel like obliged to do. And Twin Peaks is like, no, like he had these experiences because the audience had these experiences in many ways. Like he needs to have had these experiences and and take them forward because it does make like all that stuff and recontextualizes all the stuff that Dougie has done as being very actively productive. In the show, not just in a thematic sense, but in a literal plot sense of of that Dale Cooper would not be in the place he is in right now if he hadn't have done all the work he did as Dougie and found, you know, the Mitchum brothers. And in a weird way, like, the Mitchum brothers are, like, the stars of the second half of Twin Peaks Third Turn since they, like, kind of came in as characters. They've been such a, like, weirdly big part, particularly now. Like, it, it well, feels it was, like they are these really significant parts now. It feels like at this point, like, there was a conscious strategy by Cooper of, like... You know, if I just came out as Cooper, the FBI would find me and evil Cooper would find me. But if I lay low as this weird insurance agent in yeah. fucking Vegas, I can get all of my ducks in a row. You know, and, yeah, and, and I'd figure out how this wild and woolly world works yep. in 2017. So we will talk about more of this in a minute. But let's talk about the scene with Diane, which oh, is yeah. what comes next. Uh, I think they, they smartly cut this in the middle of the episode. So we kind of get the warmth on either side. Yeah. But where where Diane is at the bar, she gets that text from Evil Cooper, and there had been some ominous music. It cuts out, and she is visibly shaken. Like the thing I wrote is like, oh, it looks like she is awakening the same way that Cooper just did. Yeah. Only she isn't awakening confidently. She's awakening like she was drugged or something, and she's shuddering, breathing harshly, and uh, she's saying, "I remember, I remember." Texts back a series of numbers. Says, "I hope this works." And then she stands, we, we, very importantly, we see inside her purse, which has American spirit cigarettes and a gun. Yeah. And we need to know those two things are there. It's very Chekhovian in that yeah. sense. And then we, uh, she gets up and starts walking. And uh, again, the captions were very helpful to me here because they tell you what the songs are. And this is Muddy Mar- Magnolia's American Woman remix on the soundtrack, which is a harsh, thumping drum machine as she is like walking toward the camera. I mean, the camera... That, that is the song that we were introduced to Dark Coop with. Um, in, in the oh, pilot. man, I forgot yeah, that's, that. That's the, like the boom, boom, like that, that song. Yeah, that is that. Wow, like, that is crazy, a crazy, weird, dark, fucked up version of that song. Yeah. That is amazing. Uh-huh. That's a great connection. Anyway, so she's walking down the hall, and it's like she is a woman on a mission, and we have that song there. I also wrote down some of the lyrics because I thought they were like, oh, they're very key to who Diane is in this moment. It's the whole thing of, I know my worth and who I am. Hell will freeze over before I take orders from any old man. There's just like lyrics like that on the soundtrack that feel like, okay, Diane is, is on some kind of righteous fury. But she winds up... Uh, in, first she's in a red elevator Looks like the red room Then on the next floor she's walking down the hall um, Gordon Cole is in the room And it's like we just cut to Gordon Like disembodied like we don't know where we are yeah. But he like senses something We have a lot of cuts back and forth And then before she even gets to the door he says Come in Diane like he can sense it She opens the door comes in 
Tammy, Albert Gordon, all three of them are there. She's clutching her purse, which again we know has a gun. And the lyrics of that song pretty much told us she intends to use it, basically. And uh, she says she's going to tell them about the story of the night Cooper came to visit her. Albert offers her a drink. Um, She takes a sip and then she puts a hand in the purse. And Gordon Cole looks a little worried, as we are. Cole is basically our... The audience proxy in this scene But she pulls out the cigarettes Sorry that. Then we get the speech And what a great moment from Laura Dern I'll just read some of it here Three, four years after I stopped hearing from Cooper I was still working at the bureau One night, no knock, no doorbell That's the title of the episode also yeah. He just walked in I was standing in my living room I was just so happy to see him I held him so close And we sat on my sofa, started talking I just wanted to hear everything about where he'd been and what he'd been doing. He only wanted to know about what had been going on at the Bureau. It felt like he was grilling me. And then he leaned in. He leaned in in to kiss me. It had only happened once before. But as soon as his lips touched mine, something went wrong, and I felt afraid. And he saw the fear in me, and he smiled. And his face, that's when it started. And then the key words here, he raped me, he raped me. And obviously I'm not delivering this like Laura Dern, because it's a lot slower. But there was something about getting to... She just says, he raped me, he raped me, that was incredibly powerful. Yeah. But the, it's, it's so not sugar-coated. I also feel like it's not exploitative. They didn't film a gratuitous flashback yeah. showing it. Exactly. Like, that's the exact thought I had in the moment of, like, this is so much better than how this is usually done, which is they do the big exploitative, like... Oh, we're going to be so intense and dark and serious about like this yeah. really gritty rape scene. It's like, it's, but you lose something in doing that, and, and you're like invoking something that maybe you're not really prepared to do. You devalue the woman's experience. Yeah. It's part of what you do. Um, and here it's just because it's like this is kind of it feels to me like this is the one moment we get the real Diane uh-huh. or whatever is left of her, and for her to just say that is so powerful. Uh, she continues with her story that he took her. Uh, to an old gas station And then the electrical noise cue On the soundtrack now that we've always heard with She's talking about the convenience store yeah. I assume That we've seen in previous episodes And uh, then she looks at the text again And starts saying some seemingly Nonsensical stuff where she says I'm in the sheriff station I'm in the sheriff station I sent him those coordinates I'm in the sheriff station because I'm not me I'm not me I'm not me And then she pulls out the gun to fire at Albert And he and Tammy both fire back first and then she, it's very hard to explain what happens visually, but she like whooshes into thin air, yeah. disappearing. So, yeah, the weird, it was like there's another scene of it coming of like the weird lo-fi effects of Twin Peaks. The Return is another thing that we have to be talked about of like how effective they are and how kind of primitive they are yep. stylistically. Like the number of jump cuts there have been in the show is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get a scene in a second that I liken to the Terry Gilliam animation in Monty Python. Sure, yeah. We get a lot of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, Tammy says here, they're real. That was a real tulpa. And then Gordon says, Sheriff Station? And I did not make the connection because I, in my heart I don't want to. But people pointed out, the, the one person we know is in the Sheriff Station is like the eyeless woman. Right, yeah, Nido. Yeah, Nido. Which is very close, almost an anagram for the word Diane. It's true. But not quite. Diano. Yeah. It's her um, brother, her twin brother. Yeah. Uh, so people are thinking maybe that's the real Diane or something, maybe. which would be heartbreaking if true. Yeah. But we will find out. I mean, the Diane stuff here feels very important to me because, again, in this episode and in these last few episodes, 
Lynch and Frost have been closing off some plot threads, bringing some to a head. And I think one of the biggest thematic things in this show has been its presentation of misogyny. Yeah. And I think we've both said it, it's a critical presentation. It is not... Uh, glorifying um, no, it. No, anyway. it's not a glorification or a casual use of misogyny, I yeah. think is also an important way to frame it. And I think that's going to have to come into play. I don't think that's the last we've seen of Diane. It could be the last we've seen of Laura Dern. But I think the idea of Diane as a character, I think her evil coop and good coop, this is going to have to come together. And also whatever is happening with, happening with Audrey. Yeah. It feels like the two most important threads going into the finale to me are stopping whatever evil coop is doing and also in some way rectifying or addressing the misogyny that has been wrought on some of these women. And there's three in particular. There's Becky, there's Audrey, and there's Diane. And they are all kind of out there in the ether, and all three of their fates are very much up in the air. And I say they're two threads, but I think they're very, very related. Because I think Lynch has a view of evil that is very closely tied to misogyny, which I think is a very apt way of looking at our world. So I'm very interested to see where this goes. But... That's a scene. Yeah. I also just think the, like, the sort of metaphor he engages with of the, the tulpa and of, like, this artificial sort of, like, fractured identity that is created through the abuse is really affecting to me of just yeah. the, the idea of that what was done to Diane, like, in this sort of, like, you know, heightened metaphorical sense in, like, the weird world of Twin Peaks, but also, like, in a more literal, like, victims of abuse, rape, sexual assault, have like identity issues and and have this issue of like not feeling like themselves and feeling disembodied in many ways or literally like feeling your body isn't yours anymore and it's literally not hers in this episode and and there's something i found really powerful and a lot of it goes to both the writing and then also laura dern's performance is just you know it's a real mic drop kind of acting moment and uh then we get her last scene which is she's in the red room we get that Angelo Badalamenti guitar strum. Yeah. She's sitting in a chair across from Mike. Mike says, someone manufactured you. And she just cuts to the chase and says, I know. Fuck, Fuck you. you. And that's it. Her jaw cracks. She rattles. Her face disappears. Smoke turns into smoke. And then this little gold cube floats through the air. Again, the best way I could describe it is it looks like a, one of those really crude Terry Gilliam animations from the original Monty Python shows. Yeah. Um, but it's but happening it, to a person. And it, but it works. Like yeah. it... If it was, if they did like a really fancy CGI version of that, it wouldn't be as terrifying. Yeah. Because part of what's terrifying about all the fantastical metaphysical elements of this is it doesn't look like something that could or would happen in our world. Yeah. There's you know? no, there's no sort of like physical metaphor relationship you can make to understand what is happening to her. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like her head turns into paper and folds and then is like this weird, like unearthly black fire and you're like, what the fuck? fuck am I even looking at? It's very much like when Sarah Palmer took her face off yep. and there's just a smiling face in there like, I don't know what I'm looking at anymore, but I am suitably terrified by it. Holy crap. Anyway, uh, then we go back to the Mustang Casino and Cooper has brought his family and we get the most touching scene maybe of the whole show so far. It's fucking yeah. beautiful. Where um, he tells them that he has to go away for a while and he says, but I want to tell you how much I've enjoyed spending time with both of you. You've made my heart so full. Another moment that I think is purely Dale Cooper, you know? And um, Naomi Watts asks, what are you saying? And he says, we're a family. Dougie, I mean, I will be back. And something I noticed here is Kyle MacLachlan's performance. He looks so confident and so sad in this moment. Like, he's not lying. Someone will be back. We just don't know if it's going to be him. 
And it's a beautifully sad moment. And it seems like Janie E. figures something out here where she says, you're not Dougie. And, you know, Sonny Jim says, no, you're my dad. And he embraces Sonny Jim and says, I am your dad, Sonny Jim. I am your dad and I love you. I love you both. He's, you know, tearing up at this point. He says, you'll see me soon. I'll walk through that red door and I'll be home for good. And my note here was, God, I hope so. Please let that be the last scene of this series. Yeah. Because, and it, it does feel like that line isn't there for no reason. There's something about it that, I mean, I was tearing up here. This is a beautiful, beautiful scene. And just the idea of home and returning and that this man knows he has this thing he has to go do. Yeah. But he does absolutely love these people. All the emotions that were exchanged between them are so real and so genuine. And, you know, one of the things I wrote here in my notes is this is what great dramatic payoff looks like. Yeah. You know? Um there's a moment where, as he's leaving, Janie pulls him back and says, Don't go. He says, I have to. They kiss, and she says, Whoever you are, thank you. I love that. Yeah. It's a real, like, Western kind of scene of, like, yeah. the hero having to go out on his, like, one last ride or whatever. Yeah. Because, again, my, my ultimate prediction is he and Evil Cooper are going to go over that waterfall together. Sure, but we'll yeah. see. Anyway, and he's going to put the ring on Evil Cooper as they're falling, and they're going to do a weird Monty Python animation. Anyway, but we will see. Um, one other note is I thought the music in this scene, it's beautiful, it's an original cue, and it reminded me a lot of Mulholland Drive and some sure, of the, yeah. like, the love theme between Naomi Watson and uh, uh, the other character in that movie. So uh, kind of a similar level of like emotionality to it. But anyway, we then have a scene in the, in the limo with Cooper and the Mitchums. And uh, they're having a really good time. Yeah. We have these great shots of the POV. And Cooper has apparently told them everything, that he's a missing FBI agent. He needs to get to Twin Peaks. The Mitchums are trying to get this straight. And one of them says, Dougie, we love you, but we are not traditionally welcome at such places. Because they're going to go to the yeah. sheriff's station. What I loved about that is the way the line was d- delivered is like, Dougie, we love you, but... And then there's a pause, and I was like, oh, they're not going to buy this ridiculous story. Yeah. And I love that the reaction isn't like... What the fuck are you talking about? You're a missing FBI agent from 25 years and you have to go to some town called Twin Peaks. It's like, but we're not very popular with the law enforcement types. Yeah. And then we get this great response where Cooper says, I read you 100%. Friends, that's about to change. I am witness to the fact that you both have hearts of gold. And that is the most fucking Dale Cooper line ever <laughs> written. That Like, that was, to me, like... Even though it's not as touching in some, in a lot of ways as like the Janie E scenes and stuff, or it's not as sort of like mic drop as the like I am the FBI line, that was the like, that is like no other character in the history of fiction would ever say a line like that other than Dale Cooper. You're so right. You're absolutely right. And it's, it's something I love about the whole Mitchum Brothers arc, which is that we're introduced to them as like these brutal gangsters, kind of, if, yeah. if weird gangsters. Again, they're part of like the Quentin Tarantino riff, but now they've completely diverted from that. And it's that, okay, they were actually pretty good guys all along. Yeah, they're just in a rough business, you know. I mean, they got screwed over on the whole insurance deal that that Dougie helped them out on. You know, they had reason to be angry. They were out like $30 million or something. And now that they've made this great friend, it's like they've risen to the occasion and become good people. It's a really fun element of this story. Uh, I'm interested to see if we do anything more with the... I keep calling them the pink ladies. The, the three women right, who are always yeah, with yeah. them. But it's very interesting. I mean, they're in this... The last scene of this is they're all in the limo smiling and everyone's friends. And I love it. The, yeah. the legend of Dougie Jones lives on. Yeah. All right. Then we go to the roadhouse. And uh, they are proud to welcome Edward Lewis Severson, 
who is the birth name of Eddie Vedder. Yeah. So that's who's playing here. A guy with a guitar and a cowboy hat. And um, it's a great performance. It's a great song. And as it's playing, especially because this is another one where the lyrics are so perfect. Because the, the, the intro lines to each verse are a little different. And there are things like, um, I am who I am. Who I was, I will never be again. Who I was, that will never come again. Who I could have been, I will never have the chance. All these things that make me think of Cooper and identity yeah. and him leaving these things behind. And as this was playing, I started kind of wrapping up my notes. And I just said, what a perfect fucking episode this was and then it kept going and there was no credits and i'm like we're not done and i look at the times like, oh seven minutes left okay how is this gonna end because effectively that is the end of the episode but we have sure. an epilogue yes yeah, and we, we have a setup for the next yes. for the finale and that is audrey and charlie have finally arrived at the roadhouse they have exited their weird like one man play set or whatever they're on yep um and one of the things I noted is, wow, by the time Audrey actually got out of that house, her son was fucking dead. <laughs> Which is one way to yeah. look at it, you know? But yeah, um, they toast. Uh, he, Charlie goes, here's to us, Audrey. And she goes, here's to Billy, whoever the fuck that was. Yeah. And then uh, the guy gets up, the, the MC at the roadhouse gets up and says, ladies and gentlemen, Audrey's dance. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Because uh-huh. everyone on the floor moves to the side and they're all leaving room for a very stunned Audrey. And then I had I didn't realize that this really had not played yet on Twin Peaks The Return. The Audrey's Dance theme yeah. begins playing uh, right from the original soundtrack. Same recording. And Audrey just closes her eyes, begins swaying to it like she's being taken over. And then she's out on the floor. We have these pink spotlights all around and then a big light on her. And she's doing this even slower, weirder, sort of disembodied version of the dance from 25 years ago. And it goes on for a long time. Lynch even uses a bunch of little jump cuts to illustrate it, which is yeah. very rare in this series. Yeah. That he, well, he does it with effect sometimes, but like for an actual scene with continuity like this, he doesn't usually just jump cut within an action. Yeah. And there's lots of like shots where you can see all the people in the background that I found incredibly disturbing. Yes. Like they're just standing there. Like they look like the crowd in like a basketball video game or something. Just standing there totally stone-faced. It looks like half of them are clones of the other half. And you're like, yep. what the fuck are and these the, people? And you notice eventually, I don't know if they're doing it the whole time, but eventually they're all swaying slowly yeah. together. It's very eerie. And then out of nowhere, someone yells, Monique, Monique, that's my wife, asshole, and starts a fight. And Audrey's like a bottle. Yep. And Audrey runs over to Charlie, says, get me out of here. And then hard cut. She's looking in a mirror at herself in a white room. She's wearing white clothing and says, what? Cut to black on harsh, strong, hard electrical sounds. And then credits roll over a shot of the band playing the song, but all the video and audio is reversed. Yeah. Like it's in the red room. Wow. Yeah. My last note here was Lynch knows how to set up a fucking finale. Yeah, and then and then also it's like right, Lynch is the the like master filmmaker at dream sequences because that like that moment of the like and now Audrey's dance and all the people move is like, I mean that is like every social anxiety nightmare ever of just like the that that's the you showed up to school without your pants on thing of like wait, what do you mean I have to dance by myself? Except for then Audrey just like sort of is absorbed into this weird dream logic. But all the people there just like move aside. And I found something like really, there's something strangely disturbing about this like revelation of like, oh, 
this has all been some weird dream, like her side of the story. Because also, if you like go back earlier to the Diane stuff, when Diane was having that breakdown saying, like, I'm not me, I'm not me, that made me think of the Audrey scenes where she's having these weird disembodied experiences of, like, when I'm with you, Charlie, I don't feel like myself anymore. And so, like, I think that sort of keys you into, oh, whatever happened to Diane has also probably happened to Audrey at some point. And then... It seems like that is very much so where this is going. It's terrifying. I mean, we talked about this last week with the Audrey scenes that we were both pretty sure this was not real. This was some kind of red room yeah, or dream it or took vision. place in some weird time. Like they were, they were, it felt so disconnected from everything else. Because the show moves with a pretty clear continuity of time. Yeah. And that was so disconnected from it all. And that's because it's not real or something. Yeah. Or it's... I think everything is real to David Lynch. It's not on the same plane of reality as everything else. Exactly. Uh, it's probably the fairer way to say it. And now, but, but, to the way he plays that hand here is still so shocking and unexpected. Yeah. And, you know, Audrey could be in a mental hospital. She could be in the Red Room. She could be in a different plane of existence. It's terrifying. I mean, it's, it's, it's the middle of season six of Doctor Who. It's, Basically, it's, that's man goes to war. It's actually that's I've been trying to remember like what specific shot from what show is this reminding me of? And you're right, it's the end of Good Man Goes to War. Yes, or beginning of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's season six of Doctor Who. Yeah, so so we're going we're going to act, unfortunately we're going to have an extremely disappointing finale um, <laughs> if we're following that that track. But no, I uh, I think we're going to have a really good finale, Sean. Yeah, I that's where I would place my bets for sure. It would be very weird if somehow that's the one episode that is bad as the last one. I would not expect. I mean, I am excited. I'm glad there's no Game of Thrones next week so I can just focus on Twin Peaks. Yeah, instead of Game of Thrones, you're getting two Twin Peaks. That's way better. Yeah. And I like Game of Thrones, even if this was a little season. So... Next week, Sean, it's it. I think that will probably be the brunt of our podcast next week. Will be Twin Peaks wrap up. Yeah, we'll see. Um, you know, there's luckily the big game release next week is Destiny, but we will not have played it probably by the time we record. You know, yeah, um, yeah, and maybe we'll do something special and figure that out. But yeah, um, so next week will be mostly Twin Peaks. Uh, I, I don't even want to do any speculation. We've broken it down. I just want to see it and absorb it and talk about it with you. Um, the last thing I do want to say, just to think about this over the next week. Next week might be the last thing David Lynch ever releases in filmed material. And I think it is worth celebrating this moment. And, and I'm not trying to be morbid or anything. It's just he's in his 70s. He went 10 years, uh, 12 years actually, without releasing a movie last time. And he might just be done, you know? And the next two hours of this could be the last thing he does in his film career. And if so... What a fucking swan song it will probably be. Yeah. But I think it is worth celebrating that moment that we might all be communally watching the end of, of this man's wonderful, amazing film career. I hope he lives another 30 fucking years painting and with his family. I'm just saying it could be. And uh, I want to keep that in mind because a lot of Twin Peaks The Return has had a sense of reflexiveness and finality to it. Absolutely, and I'm yeah. very curious to see what bow he puts on all of this. Um, because this has been, I think, the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen on TV. Yeah, it has been a long, strange journey. Like, it has made me rethink a lot of stuff about, like, structural elements of episodic storytelling and, and, and exceptionalism in that space and, and what can be done in that space in 
18 one hour long episodes and and it's yeah i think it's like a transformative work for that medium of television which is something that we have been in this weird i i, I really don't like the term for like kind of almost aesthetic reasons but we've been in the peak tv era or whatever for a while now but it feels like twin peaks the return is sort of saying like you know, this is what if you want us to talk about peak tv like it's not about like cheap cliffhangers and like big well, character deaths on social media that like blow up. It is Peak about... TV technically as it was coined by John Landgraf refers to the amount of television. Sure. Um, not necessarily the quality of it. Although I think it, they intersect because we are in this interesting golden age where TV storytelling has gotten so great and there's more good TV than anyone can possibly consume. But I do take your point. I agree with it that this feels like the next evolution that we've been waiting for. Yeah, it's the sort of thing we've been building to for a while, I think. I mean, like, it's also feels very appropriate that I'm re-watching or slash-watching Breaking Bad all the way through for the first time, which is one of those shows in that, like, like sort of, like, after Sopranos, I feel like Breaking Bad was one of those big ones that felt like, oh, right, like, TV can do these, like, big dramatic character stories and it's not necessarily, like, episodic one-off things over and over again, which is never what TV actually was. That's the narrative people like to construct about this sort of, like, evolution of TV shows these days. And But it feels like this is a step beyond what those kinds of shows have been doing for me. Well, I mean, it's, it's a bookend because 26 years ago, Twin Peaks came on the... 27 years ago, came on the air and was this revolutionary work. And it took a while for TV to catch up with that, but it yeah. sparked all these fires of, like... I think some of the cinematic qualities of TV really coming to the front and it launched a bunch of directorial careers for TV directors. And, you know, then you get the moment of The Sopranos and the birth of like this model beyond network TV and the loosening of restraints. And we have this whole, you know, series of great, great masterful TV shows that comes after that, like, you know, Deadwood and Mad Men and Breaking Bad and everything in that lineage. And then we come, Twin Peaks comes back around at the time when I think some of the fire that it helped to start, it didn't start it on its own, but helped to start is blazing brightest. Yeah. And it comes back and re-revolutionizes everything. And that's an amazing thing, I think. Yeah. So I'm, I'm tremendously excited to see what next week is going to bring, how you conclude this thing and, and, just what the fuck the ending of Twin Peaks The Return is going to be, but I'm also even more excited in some ways about what, you know, the next 10, 15, 25 years after this is of who is influenced and how they're influenced by this TV show, because I think it's going to be a big a big thing going forward. Yep. So next week, we'll talk Twin Peaks. We have Halo Let's Plays going up. We're going to have another Doctor Who middle of September. So lots of exciting stuff happening. We will see you guys next week. I'm so excited for more Twin Peaks. Yes, I'm excited to move into the post-peak TV era, or as I will call it, the Twin Peak TV era.